Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, July 27, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. It's just the two of us again. Once um, again. This morning, a text with Rev yesterday. He's still with his mom. Um, she's not doing well. I'll just leave it there. She's not doing well. He's with his mom, and I told him to do what he had to do, and we'd mind, we'd mind the fort the best way um, we knew how. Every now and then, I sit behind this microphone um, greatly discouraged about where the nation is, um, the state of humanity and its uh, inclinations to do right or wrong relating to our nation. And, um, and I'm talking about mankind figuratively, please understand, uh, because a woman made a big decision yesterday um, that restores a little bit of faith in humanity as far as I'm concerned. Not much. I mean, I'm not ready to celebrate and say, you know, we're back on the upward moral and ethical trajectory as a nation. Uh, we've discussed, Josh, how complicated our country is. Um, we're we're trying to convince ourselves that diversity and, and equity and inclusion <laughs> are the priorities of our society. I think the country would do just fine if people of all races, creeds, ethnicities, religions did the right thing. And when yeah. you don't do the right thing, you own up to not doing the right thing. I mean, that that's the greatness of a nation. It would be a meritocracy. You get kind of sort of what you deserve. It's not going to be a perfect reflection of that. It never will be. It's it's such an inexact process because it's such a, a, a big, diverse country. But for those who try to convince Americans that diversity, equity, inclusion are more important than, you know, good, decent, moral people doing the right thing day after day after day, um, I hope you're beginning to see, uh, that that's not the case, but, but it takes one person to do the right thing and g gain a little, I don't know, a little zeal about believing a little pep in my step this morning about humanity. And, um, and, and can we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? That may be a sugar high. I mean, it may be this moment, my reaction to what the judge in, um, in Delaware did yesterday, but it was, it was a very, very consequential day in the restoration or not of of a nation i mean i'm not trying to overstate that because many of us just assumed that this would get swept under the rug i mean the media's not had to deal with it um they've kind of um they've preserved the narrative of there's nothing to see here they've been successful in convincing americans by and large uh that this is some crazy conspiracy theorist that some of those right-wing radio show hosts drum up um, and you know, a single female judge said, I ain't having it. I mean, I'm just not having it. I'm not going to be a part of the fix because rest assured guys, the fix was in, I mean, the fix was absolutely in, um, it was not uh, eloquently documented, but the fix was in and a, uh, a judge, uh, Mary Ellen Norica, uh, Norica, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, said not so fast and i mean when she did this this is the busy head syndrome josh when she when she did this instantaneously i say to myself ain't no way that she did this if she graduated from yale harvard you know one of the ivy league prestige stanford i mean one of these expected places of prestige and notoriety now that's crazy i mean i shouldn't say that but i, I was just thinking to myself you know you can't be a judge from Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, and have done this. And I was right. Um, she graduated from Lehigh University, 
got a master's in biology from Columbia, uh, but she got her law degree magna cum laude from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and I, I don't know why that matters to me. I, I, I'm telling you, sometimes I try to read too much into these into these episodes or events. Uh, but but the second that she pumped the brakes was the second that that I said to myself, she's not from Harvard or Yale, because someone from Harvard or Yale can't do that. I mean, you got to be complicit in the fix. I mean, the mm-hmm. fix is in. They expect a Harvard-educated elitist lawyer or judge um, to do that. Now, something else is a little bit different about Miss Judge Nareka. Um, she was a she's a lawyer who was very experienced in business litigation. Um, she'd done a lot of patent lawsuit, intellectual property. Um, she is a um, I think she was put on the bench in 2017. Um, she was an employee of a law firm that did a lot of business litigation. Delaware is not a big state, but a lot of business is domicile there. It's got lenient tax uh, uh, business taxes. And anyway, uh, a lot of the credit card companies are in Delaware. Some of the banking and financial entities are, are located in Delaware. And they ain't, but they say they are for taxes and, uh, and some of the regulatory reasons. But, um, but she worked in, I guess what I'm trying to say is, she was in private practice for a pretty significant period of time before she became a judge. The first time she saw a courtroom was not uh, from the bench. And many judges today in America, uh, the first time they see the inside of a courtroom, to any degree, is, um, is from behind the bench instead of, um, you know, litigating, do, doing some of the, the litigation. Uh, but, but once again, she worked for a firm, Morris Nichols. Uh, it's a, I mean, I, I actually went to their website last night. They uh, specialize in business litigation. She was a high performer, high achiever at um, at uh, Morris Nichols in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, became a judge in 2017. I just think this matters, guys. Trust me. She had extensive experience in business litigation. She had done a lot of litigating and, once again, intellectual property, a, a lot of patent lawsuits. She knew her way around is what I'm saying. She knew some of the questions that needed to be asked. And, I mean, the deal fell apart. I mean, it, it, there, was a, there was a couple of moments there, and none, none of this is, has been, uh, it's all reported. I mean, we weren't, there weren't cameras in the courtroom. I mean, there, there were journalists running in and out of the courtroom. I actually stayed here about an hour after the show yesterday waiting on the news to break because I just assumed the fix was in. I mean, I assumed there was going to be some Harvard-educated attorney who had turned into a lawyer and there was some political favoritism. I mean, for this person to have become a lawyer, they had to do certain things, uh, kiss the ring of certain people. And in Wilmington, Delaware, the Bidens are a big deal. And I just imagined, I mean, I just, I just felt in my heart that whoever the judge is in Wilmington, Delaware, ain't bucking the Bidens. Because that's mm-hmm. probably the reason they became a judge, being in the Bidens' good graces. It's a Trump appointee, but it had to be blessed by the two Democrat Delaware senators. I mean, there's a kind of an advised consent in some of these uh, in some of these courts, federal courts, uh, not state courts, but federal courts. So, um, so I'm just assuming to myself this is going to kind of be you know business as usual. This is going to be somewhat of a um, there's nothing to see here. Hunter Biden walks into court, he pleads guilty. Um, they accept the plea. The judge says move along um, because those are probably the most uneventful days in. Um, in the courtroom, and for whatever reason, this lady suspected that these two parties were in cahoots. 
And hmm. I mean, the United States Department of Justice can't be in cahoots with a defense team. It can't. I mean, you 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 work out a plea deal. Of course you do. You know, we we agree to this if you'll give this. You know, we'll 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 agree to a lesser charge. I mean, that's why 96 percent of all federal cases are pled. They're not tried. Um, cases don't go to trial in federal court very often. I mean, they do occasionally, but most plead and they make a deal and they move on. Because if you're a someone charged of a crime by the federal government, I mean, do you really want to try that? Really? I mean, do, do, does does Josh or Ken or any of our listeners really want to take on the big bad federal government? I mean, I know what it's like to take on the state government. I mean, I pled to a charge, campaign finance violation. I know what it's like to take on the machine, the monster. I, I can't imagine what it's like to take on the federal government. I'll give you an example. I've told people this. When I was in trouble and pled, the, the best the best way I can describe it is I felt like I had to walk through the door and they could walk through the wall. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. fighting a ghost. I know that's a weird way to explain it, but but anybody who's ever been in trouble with you know the federal government and some you know monstrosity of a government agency, you, you do feel like you're fighting a ghost. There's a set of rules that you've got to play by, a set of rules that they make every day, and they may play by or may not, but they're the big bad, the big bad government. So the Department of Justice had cut a deal with Hunter Biden that basically gave him blanket immunity. They couldn't put blanket immunity in the document. I mean, they could not say, you know, Hunter Biden is clear of any charges uh, and, and anything they may find out in some of these crazy oversight and ways and means investigations. I mean, that was not in the document. But the, the judge suspected that they were in cahoots with one another. The judge suspected that there was going to be an offering of blanket immunity. Um, she did her work. That Now, once again, had she graduated from Yale and became a judge, you know, a year after she became a lawyer, I have no idea what she would have done. But but I just believe sincerely that because she had spent a good bit of time in the courtroom uh, litigating business dealings, she had an understanding of some of the complexities here, and she began asking questions. And it was not, I mean, she didn't reject the what, what we call, the, I, mean, I think the Wall Street Journal called it a wrist-slap plea bargain. I called it a pardon. Um she didn't reject it outright. She asked prosecutors and defense attorneys to clarify the terms of the deal. I mean, that, that was kind of the ro-ro moment. <laughs> I wish we had Scooby-Doo's ro-ro. Uh, but when she said, when she asked the prosecutors and defense attorneys uh, in a very matter-of-fact way, the reporting says she asked, asked it in a very matter-of-fact way, clarify the terms on the deal related to gun and tax charges, um, and they couldn't answer those basic questions. Because they were in cahoots. The DOJ was in cahoots with a Hunter Biden legal team. But it's pretty obvious now, and she suspected that um, to be the case. So when she began asking questions about the gun and and tax charges, um, you know, that they fumbled around, bumbled around. There was kind of a misunderstanding here. She wanted clarity there. I mean, she wanted to understand. But, but the critical point came when the judge asked if the deal meant Hunter could be prosecuted on any other charges, and she specifically said the Foreign Agents Registrations Act, FARA, is what we would call that. That's when Prosecutor Leo Wise of the DOJ said he could. He can be, um, you know, uh, investigated or prosecuted 
for violations of the Foreign Agents Registration. Remember Jeff talked about Manafort yesterday? Yeah. But that's what Jeff Manafort, or that's what Paul Manafort got in trouble for, not registering as an agent. I mean, he was working for the Ukrainian government, but he was not he was not filed. He was not registered as uh, a foreign agent. In other words, there there's a there's a registration form that you've got to fill out if you're working for a foreign government. Manafort didn't do that. Went to prison. Remember, they raided his house mm-hmm. in the middle of the night because he violated uh, the the FARA. Now now you know once again, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because I'm on. I mean, I, th- there is so much to chew on here, guys. I mean, th- there is so much uh, of, of what is happening here. Uh, I'm, I'm turning back to KJP, you know, the black lesbian when she said, I, I mean, once again, their story now is we're sticking to our story. I mean, she will not even admit that there's been a moving of the goalpost. She won't admit that we've gone from the president do nothing about his son's business dealings to the president was not in business with his son. I mean, she's moved the goalpost because the, you know, uh, the proverbial walls are closing in. Um, but yesterday she said Hunter Biden's a private citizen. You know, he, he has a right to go make a living and do what he chooses to do. Why has Hunter Biden got a presidential motorcade if he's a private citizen? Why did eight security um, guards get out of the car with Hunter Biden? When he, I mean, if Hunter Biden is a private citizen, walk the ass in a courtroom like private citizens do. Don't show up with a presidential motorcade and, and secret service from one end of the, the, um, the street to the other. That, that's just so hypocritical for KJP to say he's a private citizen. No, he's not a private citizen. He's an influence-peddling son of an American president. But but it really, the, that, that is the critical moment when Judge Norega, Noreka began asking about could there be ensuing prosecution if there's an investigation that we find violates the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The prosecutor for the DOJ, Josh, said he could. The prosecutor said he can be prosecuted. Defense attorney Chris Clark said that was not his understanding. They had a deal. The fix was in. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were in cahoots with one another. Um, but but and, and and obviously the plea is not going to say he gets blanket immunity. I mean, you can't put that in a document. Any I mean, even the the, the most elitist Harvard educated on the take judge can't agree to blanket immunity. Um and and if the plea did not give that perceived blanket immunity, there was no deal. I mean, that's that's um that's attorney Chris Clark who worked for uh, the Biden legal team. And so that was when you knew that that was the moment of the entire ordeal. It was not when they were addressing the gun and tax charges. It was when the judge asked if Hunter could be eventually prosecuted for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act, Josh. Because here's what that does. When you start traveling down that road, you, you start investigating Burisma and the right. Chinese Energy Company. Remember CFL? You start investigating how we got all this money. Well, if you're investigating how he got all the money, you're investigating where the money went and who got the money. So, and, and that has always been the intent of the DOJ, guys. The DOJ is corrupt to its core. Mm-hmm. The DOJ has always tried to stop any investigation by the RS, the FBI, uh, the House Ways and Means, the House Oversight. They have tried the, the DOJ has tried to stop anybody from looking under the cover into this Foreign Agents Registration Act because that, I mean, that, 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 that it, it, it implies that Joe Biden knew exactly what was happening here because he got most of the money. I mean, he got at least half of the money. So it implicates Joe Biden. 
the, the American people are not very interested in a troubled 53-year-old son of a president. They just aren't. I mean, I can tell you that I'm not very interested in that. I've always believed that there was a moment in time when it stopped being about Hunter Biden and started being about Joe Biden. Yesterday was that defining line of demarcation. Yesterday was the day that someone did the right thing and, and said, I'm not going to allow this deal to proceed because all you're trying to do is stop an investigation into the sitting president of the United States to see if he financially benefited from selling access to the office of vice presidency, the U.S. Senate when he was a senator, and, and eventually maybe uh, the presidency or not. That, that, that is, I mean, that, that was the bell that was rung yesterday, and it's the loudest bell that has been rung in a long time in presidential government corruption. Let's go to the phone. All right, we got Matt calling from Florence. Matt, you are on the air. Hey, Ken, I guess I'm a little bit more cynical. Um, I just think the Delaware judge was like, wait a second, this doesn't cover and protect him fully. No, not at uh, all. You no, you, 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 you stop being that cynical. This is a big moment, a huge moment. A woman chose to do the right thing. Well, I think it's good then. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, all the things Democrats yell for, for gun control, this guy broke the gun laws. Is it okay if you're a Democrat to break gun laws, I guess? You know, they, they, the rules don't apply to you. He uh, committed tax fraud, and, you know, they're always sitting there clamoring about the rich should pay their fair share. But the rich guy, if you're the president's son, uh, does it not count anymore because you're a Democrat? That's the way this looks to everybody that has a brain and sees it. It's just crazy to me, you know, and I feel like the country's in really bad shape economically, and people have got to say, look, we can't do this anymore. We can't play this game because it's going to lead to our own doom. Thank you. But but I want you to do something. Thank you, man. I appreciate the call. I want us to do this. I mean, I don't give directions. I don't give instructions. I'm not qualified to tell you what to do or not to do. And if I were, I wouldn't do it anyway. But I want you to take your eyes off of Hunter Biden and start looking toward Joe Biden. There is no doubt Hunter Biden's hypocritical. There is no doubt the Democrats are being completely and totally hypocritical on tax and, and gun charges. That's not the issue, guys. The issue is the son of the sitting president acted as a foreign agent and the father financially benefited by sending him out in the street. I mean, in, in a, the, the only government access Hunter Biden can sell is whom? His dad. I mean, Hunter Biden doesn't sell access to Lindsey Graham or Tim Scott or, or Marsha Blackburn or, or, or Josh Hawley or uh, Nancy Pelosi. It's his father. And we've got to stop paying as close attention to Hunter and guns and drugs and, and prostitutes and more about, and, and that's what happened yesterday. This judge clearly said that there will be an eventual, um, you know, investigation into the Bidens relating to this foreign aid. And see what the what the, the defense wanted to do was blanket immunity. And if anything ever came up about the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, they could nip it in the bud. Nothing to see here. We're done. I mean, we we got immunity from that. I mean, you can't proceed with an investigation or a prosecution involving that. I mean, I'm telling you, DOJ and and the defense team for Hunter Biden made a deal, and the fix was in, and they thought the fix was going to get rubber stamped by a Wilmington, Delaware judge, and she decided for the first time in a long time, someone did the right thing. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. 
Back in a few moments. I'm going to go back to something Josh said. Excuse me, um, uh, Matt said. I'm as I'm as cynical as anybody. I mean, please understand. You guys have listened to me long enough. I am the the consummate contrarian cynic. But this is not about Hunter Biden. This is not about whether the sentence or the plea deal was too tough or too lenient. When she asked if there was blanket immunity, she didn't say blanket immunity. But when she said. Could Hunter still be prosecuted on other charges, such as uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act? The prosecution said he could. The defense attorney said he couldn't. That's the deal. I mean, that that's she's been a business litigator. She understands, you know, the money trail, so to speak. And and it's just, I think you know I'm as when 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 I thought about the plea bargain. And the, and the hearing and the, and the you know Hunter pleading guilty to these crimes. Um, I th- of course I think they're too lenient. I mean I've called them a pardon instead of a plea. It's far too lenient. I mean you, you or I would be treated fundamentally different. But but I don't want us to focus on Hunter and, and whether the sentence is too lenient or too tough or should he go to jail or should he keep a job or does he need to stop using drugs? This is about Hunter Biden acting as a foreign agent, not registering as a foreign agent. And that is the gateway to the investigation that allows access to the banking records access. The American people probably care to some degree about a president's son being out of control, but it's not fundamental. If an American president has been paid by foreign companies to make sure things worked out a certain way, that is a monumental political moment in our nation's history. And the judge left that door open yesterday. It doesn't make me any less cynical. It doesn't make me any less of a contrarian. I still don't trust the system any more today than I did yesterday. But but in one moment, a woman had a chance to rubber stamp, um, a, 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 you know, a cahootsy deal, and she didn't. And I think that's encouraging. So you think basically Hunter Biden's lawyers were trying to come up with this, uh, you know, legal jargon, wishy-washy way of being like, well, he's being on he's being on trial for tax fraud. He's pleading guilty in a plea deal to that, and it can later like be corroborated to. I think Hunter immunity. Biden's lawyers were in cahoots with the DOJ. Right. I think the DOJ was conspiring with the Hunter Biden law team to make sure. I mean, Biden appointed Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is trying to stop any investigation into this money trail. So, so you know, you can't put in the document blanket immunity. But yes, there was more than a wink and a nod. The fix was in, Josh. They were in cahoots with one another. It's not the language of the defense team. It's the language of the defense team and the prosecution, the DOJ. I mean, the guy yesterday didn't want to say, yes, he can. I mean, Leo Wise did not want to be asked whether Hunter could be prosecuted or investigated for violations of the uh, FARA Act or FARA. I mean, it's Act. It's it's the FARA Act. I mean, that's like saying it's deja vu all over again. Um, you, You see where I'm headed? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, your point is, so you mean the defense attorney tried to get real creative and write the plea deal? Yes. Yeah, okay. But, but they were, the, the DOJ worked with them mm-hmm. in helping craft the language, and the judge called them to the carpet, and they had no answer. I and, like that. and that's why the deal fell apart. When she said, you know, can he be prosecuted for uh, violations of FARA? The prosecution, oh, oh, crap. I mean, how did we get here? Now, now go, go back to the Senate. I imagine the deal was already in. 
The fix was already in. The deal was already made. Wilmington, Delaware, the son of Joe Biden. Of course the judge is going to do what we expect him to do or we expect her to do. But she didn't. I got no idea why she didn't do it. Now, now I'll tell you this. Her brother, her brother was a member of the Trump administration's transition team at Treasury. He's, he's, uh, her brother's one of the, he is a Harvard Law grad, but he's one of the, um, he's one of the recognized experts on Wall Street in banking, bank litigation, bank regulation, um, litigation. He's an announced Republican. I don't have any idea if she reached out to him and said, hey, help me understand this. I don't have any idea if he had any influence on her, but she was not an elitist Ivy Leaguer who rubber stamped the deal to get in Joe Biden's good graces mm-hmm. and do the bidding of the DOJ. That, that's what I'm encouraged about. I, you know, to be honest, and I, this sounds like I could care less whether Hunter Biden's sentence is too lenient or too tough. I mean, that doesn't, you know, I got a kid, I got three kids. One of my kids had some issues. Um, you know, my heart breaks for anybody who deals with addiction. I mean, it does. Um, but, but I'm not that interested in this. I'm far more interested in Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And yesterday was the moment in time when someone with some legal authority said, I'm not looking here. I'm looking over here and I'm not rubber stamping this deal because I think rubber stamping this deal will prohibit any eventual investigation or prosecution of Hunter Biden for violating Farah. And if we can't do that, we can't find where the money is and where the money went. That in essence is what happened yesterday. Let's go to the phone. We have Bert calling from Florence. Bert, you're on the air. I almost hate to bust your little bubble. I really do. I love seeing you so happy about something. I think I have to stand with Matt about this. Uh, I think because she said this, she said that she could not allow him to plead guilty to something when he thought he has protection that he doesn't have. And that disturbed me. Well, that's her job. I mean, her job is to articulate to the person pleading what he's pleading to and what the consequences could be. Right. But couldn't she just as well be trying to sew up the, the ability to, to take away their ability to prosecute him further? But why wouldn't I mean, she just rubber stamp the deal? Way? I mean, the deal gave blanket immunity. Why would she? What? I mean, why, I don't understand that didn't. point. Because she went in depth and they said it doesn't. They, the prosecution said it doesn't stop him from being prosecuted in the future. So he's going in, Hunter's going in thinking, and his attorneys are thinking that this protects him in the future. So when the prosecution said it doesn't, then that's when she said she can't allow him to plead guilty thinking he has protection he doesn't have. No, that's when he said he's not pleading guilty. Right. He said that, but that's what she said. She said she can't allow that. I, I just disagree. Bert, Bert it, it is a judge's job. If they're doing their job, some do and some don't. It is a judge's job to monitor, manage, police integrity of her courtroom. In this case, hers. I mean, in some cases, it would be his. And she smelled a rat. To kind of hone in on something you said, I don't think Bert and Matt are reading between the lines. Well, maybe they I, aren't. I think that, like and, you and said, look, there's a lot I, of subtlety. I, I, to I don't what's know. Going on. The, the, I mean, if, if Bert and Matt are right, she would have rubber stamped. I mean, if, if you want to be the most cynical person, I mean, I, I was the most cynical person you could imagine because I thought a judge in Wilmington, Delaware would rubber stamp a deal in the name of the Bidens. I just I assumed that. I mean, I thought it would take 20 minutes. That's why I stayed here after the show to watch the, you know, the, 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 the usual plea deal 
be accepted by a judge and the usual rubber stamping. Hey, do you agree with this? You know what you're being charged with? Yeah. Do you clearly understand? Are you of sound mind and judgment? Yeah. Uh, so you're well aware of what the requirements of this plea are uh, as it relates to you. I do, ma'am, uh, Your Honor. But but that's not what happened. When the, when the judge began asking questions about Burisma, specifically about Burisma, that's when that's when we had a major American political moment. I, I thank you, Bird. Appreciate it. And I accept that there are going to be cynics out there. Now, some of you, I think, go to the extreme. I mean, I, once again, I'm a cynic. I'm a contrarian. I, I, I'm a pay attentionist. I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm with you. But but you can't you can't deny that something happened yesterday nobody expected to happen, and the Biden team was scrambling. I mean, there is no DOJ scrambling because once again the fix was in. I mean, Josh asked a second ago, so you believe that the defense team had language in there that was creative, a little bit wordsmithy. No, I think the DOJ did it. Mm -hmm. I think the DOJ led the charge. I think the DOJ is more corrupt. At least the Hunter Biden defense team have a job to defend their client. I mean, the DOJ's job is to prosecute. But, But a judge ultimately has responsibility for integrity of her or his courtroom. And the lady exhibited a willingness yesterday to maintain the integrity of that courtroom. And when she made the decision, when it was obvious this thing was unraveling, that's when I Googled her name. And that's when I found out where she came from and where her brother came from. And she'd done a lot of business litigating. And that was kind of a, not an aha moment to me, but that was when a moment I said, okay, I mean, this may be a little bit different than what I expected because I expected some Harvard-educated elitist lawyer who had been appointed by two Democrat senators from uh, from Delaware with the blessing of the Bidens, and there's no way this person will not do what we expect them to do. Well, they didn't, and we've got a big news story, and now Devin Archer's testimony on Monday are even more important because if we're if we're if the judge says or if the DOJ says this doesn't exclude us from prosecuting or investigating on Farah, and Devin Archer is going to basically say. You know, Hunter was working for foreign governments, and we call his dad every now and then. You know, his dad would join us in the meetings sometime. That contradicts everything Joe Biden and the Biden administration have said since day one. He's a coal stone liar, if that's the case. Let's go to the phone. We have DW calling from Florence. DW, you are on the line. Hey, guys. Hey, Ken. Uh, You know, go Tigers, first of all. Let's go to the second part. Uh, the famous quote of the chickens may have may have come home to roost. Uh, I believe so. I'm hoping so. I'm thinking that um, we finally got somebody's got some guts in something and changed the narrative away from you know who he is and what he was and uh, that the real evil in it. Now I say evil is that Joe Biden's a crook and he's got away with this and she's the starting of the fire. I mean she's just spark. And if we don't push hard at it, it's going to die. So just like you were saying right now, if we don't continue to push this spark and uh, call it call it what it is, it's going to go out. But just like you are saying this morning, we've got to continue. We've got to keep it up in the front of everybody. Because if not, uh, these guys are crooked enough to you know try to bury it deep, 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 because they know what it's, what it's going to do to them. And, you know, finally some honesty is coming out. And thank God that uh, the prayers are being heard and lives are being changed because of it. So this is a big thing. So thank you for what you're doing, brother. Uh, keep on keep preaching the gospel of the of the Ken Hart Show and uh, have at it, my friend. 
Thank you, Nidia. Very kind. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Real quick, Josh. So, so here's what I think. You, you ready? Now, now, you know, Bert disagrees with me. Uh, Matt disagrees. I, I accept that. I understand that. Uh, but we're all kind of sort of on the same team. I think we all agree there. But what DOJ wanted was the question to not be asked. And, I mean, in other words, can he be prosecuted? Can he be investigated? Uh, they would have left that unknown, unsaid, unspoken. Uh, we don't want to address that. Then they can tell the oversight and ways and means, I can't give you that information because there's an ongoing investigation. In other words, they're lying to DO, they're, the DOJ is lying to ways and means and oversight. When ways and means and Chairman Smith or oversight and Chairman Comer say to DOJ, can you forward that information to us? We can't because it's an ongoing investigation. It's really not. I mean, they're not investigating. They're trying to wait on statute of limitations to run out. They're, they're trying to curry favor. And it, but but that I'm telling you, that that yesterday put a lot of people on the spot. Now, now I mean, we, we know for a fact the DOJ has admitted that there's an investigation. The, the defense thought they had blanket immunity. Because they did. If she rubber stamps the deal, take a break back in just a few moments. Remember yesterday when we went down the kind of the good old boyism road and Josh, I said some things that, you know, only good old boys can say this and can say it um, this way. I'm trying to articulate my belief in what I think happened and where we are. Um, but, but I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not a legal mind. I'm not, you know, a George Washington University law professor. I'm not someone who um, understands how to draft and draw and dissect and discern um, plea agreements. I'm not. Uh, but Jonathan Turley is. Mm-hmm. And, and Turley said late yesterday afternoon or early yesterday evening on Fox News that, um, that, that you know, this is the target. I mean, they, they, we're over the target when we start talking about, about fair. Let's do this. It's about three minutes long. We may have to deal with a bully ad, um, Josh, because it's on Real Clear Politics and they're bad about you know, um, bully ads and whatnot. But let's go to um, sure. George Washington law professor, and I guess he's a Fox News contributor, Jonathan Turley, kind of analyzing some of what we've spoken about here this morning. University Law School professor Jonathan Turley, thanks for being with Thank me. You. Great to see you. Uh, so much to unpack with what happened today, but I think the, the crucial question, at least in a lot of people's minds, is whether what these unusual proceedings corroborate or at least substantiate the claims from critics over the last few weeks that this was a plea heart deal this plea deal was a sweetheart deal excuse me to begin with well I think it does support that view you know the problem with a plea agreement is you can't actually type in wink and nod right I mean the the problem with this agreement (laughs) is that the judge read it and said what is this And part of the obligation of the court is to make sure that the defendant and the government are very clear on what the agreement means. And they weren't. And it broke down with the most basic questions. That was what was so surprising here, is that these are the types of questions as a defense counsel you work out with prosecutors in advance. But she basically asked one question, and the whole darn thing fell apart. And so the question now is, where do you go from here? It's like a wedding where both the bride and the groom objected. <laughs> and everyone else is sitting there saying, wait, how did we get here? And where do we go from here? Well, I know that you, you know, you don't know, right? right. Why? But why did they end up here? How did they get to this 
point in this courtroom today where they didn't agree on what they had actually agreed on? Yeah, I think part of the problem is they really did want to cap out the case. They, the Department of Justice wanted to cap this uh, investigation, but they didn't want to say that it was now over. From the very beginning, the Hunter Biden team said that this is a closeout plea agreement, that there'd be nothing left to investigate. But the Department of Justice is telling Congress, we're not going to give you these witnesses or these documents because there's an ongoing investigation. Mm -hmm. You can't do both things when a judge is asking you to specifically address whether this is a closeout or a continuing investigation. One of the specific questions the judge reportedly asked today was about FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. She asked the prosecution if the plea deal would protect Hunter Biden from future FARA-related charges. They did not answer that question. Why do you think they didn't answer that well, question? Well, this is a big problem because this was all supposed to be scripted. It was all supposed to be easy. And now it's off script and it's anything but easy because the judge just raised the one charge that the White House most fears, which is the chance that Hunter was a foreign agent. And if he was a foreign agent, the question is foreign agent for who and for what purpose? The president was that purpose. He, if you're influence peddling, it's influence over the president. So if you go for FARA, it's going to bring all of this stuff in, including some of these tax counts from 2014 to 2015 that the Department of Justice allowed to run, allowed the statute of limitations to expire. Right. All of that can get bootstrapped into a FARA issue. So the whole purpose of this deal is collapsing as, as, as we're watching it. And it's taken Washington by utter surprise. I was on the Hill yeah. talking with members and everyone was Everybody floored. was in disbelief today, That's right. it seemed, yeah. you know, from Capitol Hill to the news stations. I um, want to ask you about this quickly before. And see, there, there's someone who understands it at an academic and, uh, and legal level. I mean, I don't. I mean, you know, I, I surmise from what I read and, and, you know, some of the sources I trust, and I'm talking about their folks out there that don't know what they're talking about. They're in the mainstream. They have large audiences, but they honestly don't know what they're talking about. And there are others who have a vast understanding and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to what happened yesterday. And, and I think what happened yesterday is there was an attempt to give Hunter Biden blanket immunity. The fix was in. The DOJ conspired with Biden's defense team and it was all about Farah. It was all about making sure this investigation of Hunter Biden does not eventually lead to him being a foreign agent because that will eventually lead to big paychecks and sitting on boards and, you know, why was he getting big paychecks? In other words, what value is Hunter Biden as a foreign agent to anybody other than his father? I mean, he's of no value to anybody else. I mean, he can't peddle influence or sell access to anybody else except except Joe Biden. So when the judge specifically said, you know, does this mean that, that he can't be prosecuted on charges relating or violations relating to Farah, um, the DOJ was forced to say uh, he could be prosecuted, and that's when it broke apart because the deal they have with the defense, and that's the wink and nod. I mean, he can't put wink and nod in writing. I mean, the judge doesn't sign off on blanket immunity, doesn't sign off on wink and nod because judges have a... Uh, a responsibility to maintain integrity of of their courtrooms. So, so in essence, the fix was in, mm -hmm. and it comes to fruition if this lady, judge from Delaware, doesn't do what she did.
And 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 you can't have it both ways, as Jonathan Turley said. You can't say the investigation's over until, you know, members of the House Oversight and Ways and Means, I can't give you that information. I can't allow that witness to appear because it's an ongoing investigation. I mean, they've tied themselves in double knots, triple knots, quadruple knots. I understand the cynic said, uh, you know, that there's still nothing going to happen. I don't know. I don't have any idea what happens here. And to be honest with you, I don't care if the plea deal for Hunter Biden was too tough or too lenient. I don't. I've always said if we can open this Pandora's box of Farah, it's going to coincide with ways and means and oversight investigation. And I'm not saying DOJ will be made to do what they're supposed to do because I don't think Merrick Garland will. I just don't think Merrick Garland uh, will do that. I think he is a, a corrupt DOJ or, uh, attorney general. I think he's got to burn his saddle about, you know, McConnell and the Republicans and and we got a conservative court now because Obama put Merrick Garland. I mean, I understand some of that human energy. I do. I understand Merrick Garland uh, being kind of an anti-Trump, anti-McConnell, anti-Republican mindset. But it's not his job to do that. His job requires him to be um, an equal applicator of the law. And he's just not doing that. And the DOJ is corrupt. It's been in, in embedded with uh, liberal activists in, in very important positions. And, you know, when, when, when I thought a Wilmington, Delaware judge was going to rubber stamp a deal for the Bidens and she didn't, I kind of sat up in my seat. And then the old Scooby-Doo, row-row, where, where do we go uh, from here? 843-661-0937. Love to hear what you have to say. Um, John Decker will be a very interesting guest. He'll be next with us. He is great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent, and a lawyer, mind you. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number waiting on momentarily John Decker to call. We thank John. He normally calls at about 725 on Thursday mornings. This morning would be a very interesting six or seven or eight minutes to have um, John Decker on board. But, Josh, I don't think he's called yet, has he? Not yet, but okay. he should in a second. Yeah, should in a second. Let's go to um. Do we have another call, or do we want to wait on John's call? You tell me. You're the producer. I'm just those. he's yeah. He, I'm texting him. He's about to call. Okay, he's about to call. So let's get John in here. He's on a kind of a time constraint. Got to be out by seven thirty-three or thirty-four is what John. Real radio. I mean, live radio. Real radio. Live radio, guys, is what I'm trying to say here. So we're operating in real time. We think John will call us, and I'd love to get John's perspective. Um, this morning on this particular issue that has really dominated, uh, you know, our news. I mean, obviously the mainstream media hadn't paid much attention to it, but conservative talk radio for the last couple of months have talked a lot about uh, the Hunter Biden situation. Does it eventually um, lead to Joe Biden? Maybe, just maybe, uh, this is the breakthrough that forces some of the mainstream media to pay closer attention to that great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today and having a great week. We are, John. I, I got a personal relationship with this and a personal experience. When I was lieutenant governor, I pled guilty to campaign violations, campaign finance violations. I under, I'm not a smart man. I'm not legally trained by any stretch, but there was never any doubt as to how clear I understood my position and what the AG's office were offering. I mean, it, it, it was emphatically clear. There was no concern. There was one sticking point about my resigning or not uh, during the plea bargain. We kind of hashed out that. What I'm saying is when I walked in front of a judge, I had with absolute clarity what the deal was. What happened yesterday 
in this plea bargain in uh, in Wilmington, Delaware? Bottom line, Ken, bad lawyering, bad lawyering. And the reason being is because clearly neither side understood what was contained in the framework of this plea agreement, what was contained in the scope of this plea agreement. And in fact, this was brought out by the judge presiding over this case. She asked that simple question, what's contained in this agreement? What's the framework for it? And she got two different answers. Uh, The lawyers for Hunter Biden said this essentially clears the slate for our client, Hunter Biden. And the government said, no, it doesn't. Uh, Our investigation is ongoing. And then she said, well, then you don't have a deal. There is no plea deal that you've agreed to. Uh, They tried to work out a deal in court. uh, And then uh, when they thought they worked out a new deal, the judge said, "Uh, this is not a straightforward agreement. And there are things contained in here I've never seen before. So she's given them 30 days to come back to see if they can strike a deal for a plea agreement and see if it can get the approval of this federal judge. And John, one of the specific questions was, uh, you know, the, the, the FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. That's when yes. the, the, the prosecution, the DOJ said that there, there is a, an opportunity to investigate and, and potentially charge. Um, the defense attorney said that was not his understanding. How do you misconstrue that one simple? I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, you know, you got ways and means at oversight investigating some of these things. How do you make a mistake? Are lawyers really that bad at that level? The lawyers representing Hunter Biden, to answer your question, Ken, really were bad at that level because they didn't ask that straightforward question. Uh, You know, okay, we have a deal. Just so I'm clear, just so I'm clear in terms of the language that we've agreed upon, does this clear the slate for my client? Are you investigating him for anything else? straightforward questions that clearly were never asked by the lawyers representing Hunter Biden. I think there was just a hope that this ends everything without getting a confirmation of that from the Department of Justice, specifically from the U.S. Attorney for Delaware's office. John, one of the things I like most about you is your ability to set aside your political debt. And I don't have any interest in what yours are, and you kind of sort of know mine. But but in the White House press room, um, KJP has historically said the president knew nothing about his son's business dealings. They moved the goalposts, and it's now the president has never been in business with his son. Is that nuanced? Is there something to read it? You're an old hand at this. You've been around that block more times than anybody I know has. What do you make of that? Well, there's a difference between those two statements, and you understand the difference. You caught that difference. There is a difference. Uh, You know, there's a difference between having conversations with your son, saying, How's, how are things going? Uh, how's your business going? Uh, and can we believe that the president ever asked his son that question? I, I think that you know strains credulity. Uh, of course he asked that question. But now they're saying he was never in business with his son. And then even that uh, isn't clear. What does that mean? Was there a contract between uh, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? Maybe there wasn't. Maybe it was an unwritten contract uh, between those two. So that part doesn't clear up things either, as far as I'm concerned, in essentially reading through what uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, has said in answer to these questions that have been posed to her. John, the last thing I want to touch on with you, yesterday we had one of the most odd moments I've seen. Yesterday was kind of a crazy day anyway, but Mitch McConnell just kind of blanked out in the middle of a press conference uh, he's mm-hmm. over the age of 80. Joe Biden's over the age of 80. Republicans make a lot of issue with Biden's health and stamina and, and coherence. Um, that was a little bit spooky and scary yesterday. 
It was. You know, if you were watching that yesterday, I'm not a stra- I'm not a trained medical professional. You aren't, Ken. Uh, but you know, it looked like you were seeing a stroke in real time, and clearly. Uh, I've never heard that uh, that was the case as it relates to what happened with Mitch McConnell yesterday, but it was a scary moment. Uh, he is 81 years old. He's had health issues uh, earlier this year. He fell down, had a concussion, broke some ribs, uh, took a few weeks to recover. Uh, so this is an individual who was not in tip top shape. Uh, and yesterday was an example of that. I hope he recovers 100% and continues his duties as the leader of for Republicans in the Senate. But, you know, I think that we're waiting to see whether these weekly press conferences that he conducts every Wednesday continue going forward. Will he have one next week? Will he have one the week after? Uh, Are we going to see episodes like what we saw yesterday happen again? Hopefully we won't see those types of episodes and hopefully these press conferences continue without any type of incident. John, we know you're on a tight schedule. Thank you for your time. Appreciate the contribution. Have a good weekend, sir. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me on today, Ken. Bye-bye. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John um, Decker. And I want to go back. When I played, I mean, I, I had, I'm not a smart man. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I say a lot. I ramble about a bunch. I, you know, I try to understand the world around me, but I'm certainly not some intellectual heavyweight. I had with absolute clarity, a clear understanding of exactly what, uh, what I was up to and what I was up against and what the deal was and uh, we, we had about a week's worth of debate about resignation or not. My lawyers felt that was out of bounds. In other words, he's pleading guilty to these campaign viol- campaign finance violations. Why do you want his job? Now, I think I know why they wanted my job. You want to be real arrogant for a second, Josh? I'd love for I don't think be. they thought they could whip me at the ballot box. So let's get him off the playing field. and <laughs> let's, gotta, let, let's, um, let's damage him enough that we don't have to try to beat him at the uh, at the ballot box now once again that that's me being a bit of an arrogant former former politician but um but that was that was a sticking point and, and it was not as much a sticking point with me as it was as it was my attorneys my attorneys felt the the ag's office had no right to ask for my job i mean he's pleading guilty you know that the, there are these punishments that go along with pleading guilty to violation of campaign finance but but why do you want the guy's job well i mean i think that's where it stopped being about law enforcement and, and started being more about politics. In other mm-hmm. words, you know, let there there are consulting firms involved here. You know that there are different campaigns involved here. There are future candidates for governor involved here. I mean, I'm good. I mean, I moved on and you know wiped the dust off and have ended up, I think, in a better place than I would have had I stayed in politics. But but I remember um, c- kind of the negotiations that went on, and I just don't. I mean, I, I love John to death, and I think John is an honest broker. But it's not bad lawyering. I mean, the lawyers did exactly what they thought they were going to get done. The fix was in. The DOJ had conspired with Hunter Biden's lawyers, and they were trying to figure out a way to end any further investigation or prosecution with him in regards to being a foreign agent. Because once you start investigating Hunter Biden as a foreign agent, the first question you got to ask is, who's he a foreign agent for? I mean, who is he working for? And, and I think it all goes back to, to the father. So I do believe that yesterday was a very important moment. And I mean, it restored not all my faith in humanity by any stretch, but, but some lady, some lady, not a dude, not, not, not some manly man in, in Wilmington, Delaware, some woman summoned up the courage in Wilmington, Delaware, Biden country, USA, to say, I'm not doing this. I mean, I think you two 
teams of lawyers are in cahoots. And I'm not going to be a part of that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We got Breeze. Breeze, you're on the air. Kid, yeah, you're, you're dead all right. I figured Hunter Biden, the overdose, suicide. Joe gets declared mentally incompetent. Something that would surprise me. But you're right. They want us to believe that you can hire a better bunch of Biden lawyers than the Bidens can. That, that plea deal was not a complicated deal. I think you and I could have hashed it out. So it wasn't incompetence on the lawyers. You're absolutely correct. It was corrupt DOJ, corrupt Bidens and lawyers. But here's my question, Ken. I don't believe in any good guys anymore. I really don't. I would like to believe that that lady had a moral and ethical moment, but I don't believe it. I believe that somebody went to her, you know, your cathedral, so to speak. I believe somebody went to her and said, hey, Here's what we're going to do. And I don't believe anybody in Washington that thinks these things through will believe it. She may be. She may be everything we will want her to be. But there's a good chance that daggone, the people like Vanguard, BlackRock, the people that really run this country, this world, and don't think for one second that these politicians are the ones that are running it. They're running it after they're being told how to run it. But I believe somebody went through the judge and said, listen, put the kibosh on all of this. We're throwing all the Bidens under the uh, bus, and then we're going to let off. And here's another thing I believe. I believe the only way that a Republican can become president is if they let him become president. And I don't mean the Democrat Party. I mean the people that run all of the parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. They'll let them become president. And then they may or may not let the economy go into a recession or not. I don't think we have any control over any of this crap, kid. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Okay, if I want to go along with Breeze, Breeze and I are sitting at a bar drinking a beer. I've tried to establish that I think once someone did the right thing. I mean, that's what I'm arguing. In, in, in the most corrupt political world America's ever seen, some lady in Wilmington, Delaware, did the right thing. Let's play the other angle. Let's play Breeze's angle because I thought of this. I think you got to put everything on the table. Let's say that the Democrats are convinced that Joe Biden is the only candidate Donald Trump can beat. He's cognitively impaired. He's corrupt. He's got all these other issues. He's got this kid that's a weight around his neck. But, but I, I don't think people will not vote for Joe Biden because of Hunter Biden. I mean, it's not your response. A 53-year-old kid is not your responsibility. I mean, he's a grown-ass man. He's not a kid. I mean, his life is out of control. But you can't blame Joe Biden for his kid and, and, and his, you know, moral decadence and uh, impurity and all that. But let's play Breeze's um, scenario out to the extreme. Let's say that BlackRock or Vanguard or the Cathedral because I do believe this. I mean, if, if if I'm right and the lady did the moral and ethical thing, it doesn't change the fact that the World Economic Forum still runs the world. It doesn't change the fact that BlackRock, Vanguard, Corporate America, Wall Street, all these, uh, the cathedral. I mean, n- nothing about that changes. It could be one shining moment in American history where a woman decided, I- I'm swallowing hard and I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm just not going to do what they want me to do. But but it could be what Breeze is saying. But But if it is... It's because they believe Biden's the only guy Trump can beat. So this just gets Biden off the playing field. What did I just say about my plea bargain? I mean, the one thing that, you know, was a hang-up was 
He's got to resign. Well, when I resign, I'm done. I mean, I got to come home. I can't fight for a political career and an eventual run at the Senate or Congress or, or governor. I mean, I got to come home and put myself back together, so to speak. So, I mean, I don't, I don't take that off the table. I mean, I, you know, I'm not that naive. I'm not sure uh, that this was a um, kind of a shining moment in a dark period of American politics. But, but I, you know, that, that, that's the other scenario. I mean, that, that's the cynical, um, contrarian, uh, you know, I think it's corrupt to the core, and there's no way to change it. it. It could be that. I mean, it could be that, you know, this lady is a pawn of the game, and the game is to get Biden off the playing field so Gavin Newsom can run against Donald Trump or, or, or Susan Rice can run against Donald Trump or Michelle Obama can run against Donald Trump, and the lady had a part to play in that. Now, is that a reasonable theory? Uh, we live in a real crazy world right now. I mean, the only, what, what have I said? The only conspiracy is to believe there's no conspiracy theory. I know that sounds a bit untoward, but it's um it's where I land. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We got Dale calling from Florence. Dale, you're on the air. And that's the question I called to ask. I don't think for a minute this is altruistic or, you know, trying to do the right thing or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just, guys, who who do you see? We got a little over a year to the next election. Ain't that a coincidental? Um, I'm right there with you. I think this is all designed to get uh, Biden out of the way. Who do you guys think we're going to see in next year's election? I'm thinking it's going to be Gavin Newsom and somebody. I don't know who's coming from our side yet, but, you know, they're trying to do the same thing to Donald Trump. There's going to be lawsuit upon lawsuit. And who do you guys see in about, oh, the next six months, these uh, – the party's coalescing around. Who are who, who are we going to see in the next election? You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. I mean, I think Gavin Newsom is their, I mean, that, that's their heir apparent. That's who they'd like to pass uh, the baton to. Um, they've got a problem. And, and we talked about it on this show. The problem is uh, the most loyal Democrat vote in America is African-American females. So you're going to jump Kamala Harris to get to Gavin Newsom and offend African-American females? Really? I mean, you know, I, I don't like the idea of, of Kamala Harris being president. I, I, you know, it worries me to death that, you know, Biden falls over or, or does something and becomes completely disabled and she um, assumes the role and responsibility of president. That freaks me out because I don't think there's any depth there. I mean, I just don't think there's any seriousness to, to, to Kamala Harris. But, but that's, that's the dilemma the, the Democrats have. They believe their most talented uh, prospect is Gavin Newsom. But you got to get rid of Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris in the interim. Now, now, here's a scenario you could play out: Biden could resign, or could Biden could be deemed uh, cognitively unqualified. I mean, he's so far out of it, he can't know. You know, he can't even read the teleprompter any longer. He can't walk upstairs, downstairs. I mean, they've got a strategy now with the campaign. Imagine America, guys, the preeminent superpower on the planet, and the campaign of Joe Biden is trying now to make sure stages are not as elevated. I mean, that's where we are. You know, you know, we're famous for climbing every mountain and conquering every hill. And, and now we've diminished our, our politics to a place where the guy who is president of the United States now is appearing in places and there is a strategic, um, a, a strategic 
opportunity, I guess, to not make him walk up four flights of stairs, but rather one or two. I mean, that, you know, and we profess to be the preeminent superpower on the planet. It's absurd what we're doing. But Dale, Gavin Newsom is their top prospect. Kamala Harris is the VP. Is there a scenario that, 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 that Biden is replaced by Harris before November of 2024 and Gavin Newsom runs against Kamala Harris in the Democrat primary? In other words, Biden's off the stage. He's gone. I mean, it didn't fall. They let him off. And, and, and you know, we, we go into, let's say we go into March 2024 with President Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom decides to run against Kamala Harris. I mean, the, you know, the African-American female had her chance to be president, and she's got a chance to win the Democrat nomination. I mean, I'm just playing out a lot of these hypothetical scenarios. Now, the only way I see Trump losing is one of these indictments turn real nasty. I mean, just turn real negative, real nasty. Um, some of the Republicans even kind of look and say, wow, I mean, this is, this is more than I asked for. DeSantis, Tim Scott, you know, Chris Christie, I don't know. I mean, somebody else. What would, would make a move there. It looks to me like it'd probably be DeSantis or or Tim Scott. But but right now, I mean odds are Biden versus Trump. Take a break, back in a few. There's there's very seldom a single issue or subject or topic that we can spend four hours on. I mean, we move around and we bounce around and we talk a little bit about this and a little bit about that. But I do believe that today is one of those days that we can take this single issue and I'm talking about the plea deal gone bad, mm-hmm. um, and we can spend really and truly a couple or three days because it's it could be as it appears, but as some callers have suggested, it could not be as it uh, as it appears. We we bought you know there's a natural inclination, Josh, that some of us have. I don't know if you've developed it, you know, for or against. There's a there's a kind of a place that we all find certain comfort in in what we believe and it's i mean it's it's kind of in balance with what you perceive your social standing to be uh obviously your socioeconomic uh, settings and, and I'll give an example it's becoming a little more popular in the Republican party today and I want to say this Drew McKissick is normally with us at 805 Drew texted me a bit ago and said he's uh, he's traveling, he's in Dallas, he thought some things were going to work out, they aren't, so he's not going to be available. Um, so Drew will try to join us. I mean, I'm sure he'll be with us next week, but he apologizes for not. It's not a weekly feature. I mean, it's not sponsored by, but uh, but Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the party, who, um, I mean, if the Republican wins in 2024, Drew will in all likelihood be chairman of the GO of the RNC. I mean, that, that's a big deal, and we've established uh, a friendship with him, and I know Drew from, from way back. So, um, you know, anyway, that does, he can't be with us today because travel plans didn't go as planned. Um, I think he's blaming Buttigieg for some of the uh, air travel in Texas, and he's traveling in the name of the RNC, doing some work on behalf of the, of the RNC. But I'll give an example of, 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 you know, kind of this evolution of – how conspiracy theorist are you willing to be? How yeah. how 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 willing are you to get out there a little bit? Um, balanced with how do people perceive me? How serious am I taken? Um, do people take my opinion seriously or not? Do they think I'm one of those crazies or kooks 
Um, and, and, and all of us c- kind of work through that in our own in our own way. I talked to Robert a couple of days ago, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar. And, you know, I mean, Robert and I have a, a, a longstanding friendship. We've been through some battles together. And we were talking about Peter Thiel. And I said, because I, I like to talk to Robert about Thiel, because Robert lives in that world of d- big donors and, you know, sitting down with wealthy, wealthy people, trying to explain to them why it makes sense to give, you know, $20 million or $10 million or $5 million or $100 million, whatever that number is, to this um, independent expenditure to make sure the election um, goes our way. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember a while back, one of our good callers, Larry, said, we're talking about, you know, Thielism and, and Peter Thiel. And Larry's concern was not that I don't buy into some of his libertarian worldview, not that I don't believe he's smart, not, not that I don't, I don't believe he's kind of an anti-China Republican. I'm not saying Thiel's a one-trick pony, but, but it is very anti-China. Now, now, me personally, that's my intrigue with Thiel because I think the American political body needs to be anti-China. I mean, I think China is a eminent geopolitical foe, not, 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 not like Russia. I mean, it's economic, it's military, it's every, I think, I think China will be a larger threat to my kids than Russia ever was to me. So when <laughs> Teal is an anti-China libertarian leaning, you know, uh, Republican, that's kind of sort of me. Now we get off at the, uh, the gay and billionaire. I ain't gay and I ain't a billionaire. He's both. So, so there's some divergence there, but, um, but Teal can say what he wants to, I mean, Teal, let's blank you money. It doesn't matter to him. I mean, he doesn't have any concern at all. What Larry thinks, what I think, what you think. Um, and, and if, and if any of us were, you know, if we were the initial investor in Facebook and sold PayPal, we probably wouldn't have much concern what other people thought of us either. So, so Larry's concern with Teal was, I don't trust him because he doesn't have to be anything, but what he wants to be. I mean, he can be this today and that tomorrow. So, um, but, but very few of us have gotten there. I mean, we, we don't have that liberation. We, we've got to operate in a, in a social and economic construct and being accepted and being paid is a big deal in our world. Um, it's getting more common for what we perceive to be mainstream Republicans to be sympathetic to America first. I mean, I'm hearing a lot more of that sort of, of talk. In other words, I'll give you an example. Um, Marco Rubio is a talented politician, compelling life story, wrote a book, Decades of Decadence. And in the Decade of Decadence book, he's, he basically throws the, the, the Republican donor and elite class under the bus. And, and he talks about, you know, this, um, this, this, this production-oriented economy that rewards labor and the average American worker. Ten years ago, that would have been weird. Now, but that's out of the mainstream. You know, we, we were an elitist, kind of a country club. Um, you worried about what they thought of you in the stag lounge. And, and you were very careful to kind of defend the hayseeds and hillbillies and rednecks and, and working class. Well, Rubio has accepted now. Or Rubio has kind of, okay, that, that's accepted now. I mean, I can write a book that throws the donor class under the bus, that throws some of the, the neoliberal elites under the bus. Um, so, so we're getting to a better place. If you believe what I believe, now if you're an elitist or if you're a country club Republican, you don't like it. I mean, if you're kind of a um, status quo establishment, or if you're, you know, Karl Rove or, or Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush, I mean, you, you, you despise this movement. I mean, you hate it with every fiber of your, of your being. If you're J.D. Vance, you love it. 
If you're Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, you love it. It's kind of a non-globalist, non-interventionist, kind of an anti-China movement within within the party. So we all have these conundrums that we work out uh, introspectively, and and you know, with our friends and with our associates and with our with our fellow workers. Um, so so when when we say that, you know, because we've debated, and I want to get your take on this, we've debated whether the judge in a in a rare moment in recent political memory did the right thing. Mm-hmm. She saw corruption. It was clear to her, and she said, I can't sign off on this. I'm not going to be a part of agreeing to a plea deal um, that, that, that nobody else in America would get, only the son of a president. And this is not partisan. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree that this is all about Democrats and Republicans. I mean, this is privilege, and this is kind of elitism and insiderism versus versus outsiderism. But but it's not uncommon now for people of noteworthiness to say things that they previously would have been very uncomfortable saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um. I mean, the, the you know the the perceived, and I'm not saying they are, but you know the nuts and crazies have always been nutty and crazy. You know, that they'll get on the first train smoking toward conspiracy theory land. Um, there seems to be more liberation amongst the 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 the, the Marco Rubios of the world and, and kind of saying, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I would completely rule that out or not. Ten years ago, Marco Rubio, if you said you believe the judge was working in orchestration with the cathedral and this was an attempt to get Biden off the playing field, because Trump's the Biden's the only guy Trump can beat. I mean, you would have been laughed off the field. You would have been told, "Shut up and go home." I mean, stop with that nonsense. Go read wh- whatever Alex Jones is writing today. But but I think when you say that now, that maybe there's not a, a kind of a, a round of applause, but there's some mm, okay. I mean, I, I don't know that um I don't know that he's that far off base. Is that a reasonable alternative? Well, I mean, I think that's kind of where we are in politics today, and I do believe this. I do believe that talk radio was fed into that narrative. I think talk radio has kind of reinforced that narrative. But I think on many fronts, talk radio has been able to defend that narrative. Uh, you, you said something a bit complimentary to me a minute ago. When, when you came to work here, uh, I would say some things that you listened to but didn't. Uh, okay, I mean, I, he's, he probably is playing talk radio show host now, trying to provoke. And a month later, we'd kind of end up where? where I said we, we potentially could end up. And I, I just think that the body politic and, and, the, and the, the, the general public have become so disconnected with one another that anything is fair game. Everything can be put on the table. Yeah, and I was going to say something I mentioned to you off the air. Uh, I think when it comes, like, people that are more open to conspiracies and people that pay attention, pay attentionists, who kind of make make these connections, we have to remain reasonable because I believe once you once you start down that path, you can overanalyze. I don't believe that the United States government and the elites are omnipotent. They make mistakes. If, if they were that, they wouldn't need to do these conspiracies. They could just do whatever they wanted. So they need to... You know, they're prone to make mistakes. They're prone to have, okay, here's some here's some judge. She's probably, you know, like, she's not going to stand up to us. And then she does. Yeah. And then they're playing catch-up. See, that's an interesting take. They assume the judge is going to do what needs to be done. 
mm-hmm. there's an assumption there. Toe the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah sir. she knows better than to not, you know, go along with the plea deal that we've made, and she doesn't. And you're right. I mean, it, it, we'd like to believe that th- th- these are perfect defenders of whatever it is. They're, they're not defending liberty and justice and, and, and you know, a li- what is it, a live liberty and, and pursuit of ha- They're not defending that. I mean, we so manipulated and distorted our political world. I mean, it, you know, I've, I've said it. I'll say it again. It's probably one of the smartest things I could say. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? I mean, I learned that in politics. That's, that's 101. Money is the answer. Now, what's the question? And, and you're right. They could have uh, wrongly assumed that this judge in Wilmington, Delaware, and, and Biden being the defendant, I mean, what do you think is going to happen there, Josh? You know, if you remember the cathedral. I mean, of course she's going along with this um, sweetheart of a deal that I've referred to as a pardon, and she doesn't. And, you know, were they caught off guard? Do they clean it up? Do they fix this in a manner consistent with what some of our callers have said? I don't know. I don't, I'm one of the radio shows that a show hosts that will say on occasion, I don't know. I don't have any idea where we go from here. Now, now, there will be some others with much larger audiences, bigger paychecks that say, well, they're sure this is what happened. They're sure um, that will happen. I don't know where we go from here. And I don't have any idea. I mean, is there a is there an angle that says Biden is the only Democrat Trump can beat, so we got to stop Biden from being the nominee, and the best way to stop Biden from being the nominee is to allow an investigation into Farah, this this um, foreign agent, you know, registering uh, authority or act. I think it's called the act. The the A means act. Uh, you know, I don't know that. I mean, I don't have any idea. I, I do believe if they begin investigating thoroughly and and seriously, they'll find a paper trail and bank records that lead to Joe Biden. I mean, I've read enough about it. I've studied enough about it. I've tried to understand it. Uh, I'm fair-minded. I mean, I'm a Republican. I don't make any bones about that, but I'm not a hack. I mean, I'm not going to be a hack. Right. The, the last thing I'm going to ever be is a hack for the GOP. I am a conservative-minded Republican. I can get libertarian in some places. I get anarchist in some places, but I'm never going to concede to being a hack. I'm just simply not going to do that. Unless somebody offers me an ass of money, and then I may turn into <laughs> turn into a hack. Let's go to the phone. Someone's All there. right, we got Jason calling from Marion. Jason, you're on the line. Hey, good morning, Ken. There's um one key element that you need to factor in with this whole Biden, Harris, and Newsom. And let's just say your scenario plays out that Biden exit stage left, Kamala becomes president for a short time, and then Gavin, you know, takes her on in the primary. Well, you still got RFK out there, and he could kind of muck up the waters a little bit, even though the media will try to do everything they can to not to get him, you know, any type of airways. But, I mean, is there enough old school Democrats out there that can, you know, lift him up? Probably not. But what about independents? You got independents. Well, I really don't like Trump. And, well, I really hate Gavin Newsom. So let me vote for this guy, RFK. What? Put him in the in the scenario now, and what 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 do you say about that? Well, I mean that's interesting. See, RFK is such a complicated political figure. I mean, he's got that historic last name Kennedy, but but here's where RFK is, and and this is really part of the generational realignment. And this is where I disagree with a lot of the Republican hierarchy. They believe this is one of those moments, very similar to the Tea Party, or you know. Um, uh, the, the Reagan rep. No, I mean, I think this is a genuine 
generational realignment of one of the major political parties. It's not like it. It's not like the Reagan Revolution. It's not like uh, the Tea Party. It's not like some of these other brush fires or or hissy fits parties have. And political parties have fits. Some of they have internal squabbles. They have issues that they have try to you know hash out. And 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 RFK would be interesting. The majority of America First Republicans would be very much in the RFK camp when it comes to vaccine skepticism. I mean, yeah. RFK's never said the vaccine doesn't work. RFK says, if you listen to what he says, he says it consistently. There were a lot of things we didn't know, and we made the public believe we did. I mean, he's very skeptical of what we did in relation to demanding people get vaccinated. I mean, he's never said, I'm an anti-vaxxer. He's basically said that there were a lot of questions that we didn't have answers to, and we told the public we knew. That's his thing, okay? The majority of Trump voters land there. Despite Trump keeping Fauci, they'll look past that, you know, despite, uh, you know, Christopher Ray's the FBI director because Trump appointed him FBI director. Uh, and you can be blind by your loyalty to Canada X, Y, or Z. But let's go to RFK. Climate change. The majority of Republicans and a higher percentage of America Firsters are very skeptical of climate change. They believe the climate's changing. They just believe they're being spoon-fed, you know, kind of this um, this cooked-up academic exercise that, that, you know, some of these experts, meteorologists, scientists, um, you know, know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now and know what to do to stop it from being that in 100 years. So, so, so RFK Jr. is a big believer in man-made climate change. I mean, he, he kind of buys into that narrative. But, but he's very skeptical of the vaccine science. He sees with you on one issue, he's not with you on another issue. The one thing that RFK Jr. is very in tune with that, that Biden doesn't seem to be, and, and, and most of the Democrats, excuse me, most of the Republicans don't, is this, you know, uh, immigration trade China. I mean, I've said that over and over again. I can put up with a lot of Trump. I mean, I'm a sometimes Trumper. Uh, I'm a most times Trumper. But I'm an always America firster. I, I believe in, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the idea, the concept that a party that prioritizes the American worker, the American family, the American way of life will require our government to be very vigilant on immigration, vigilant on China, and vigilant on trade policy. A production-oriented economy that works for the American working class. That's the, to, to me, that's the backbone of America first. Now, as long as Trump's here, guess what, Josh? He's going to be the center of attention. Right. He's going to be the focal point. He's going to be, um, and he's not going to have it any other way. But he's just not. I mean, he's, he's a narcissist. He's an egomaniac. I mean, he's a damn good president. I mean, he was a deregulating, limited government business guy. Didn't do anything on the debt, but I don't know what to do about the debt. But, but in theory, Trump was a, uh, you would expect a business guy to be a deregulator. And, you know, c- kind of cut taxes on corporate America so they could, uh, trickle down, and I, I mean, I don't buy into that. I'm, a, I'm one of the few Republicans that believe trickle down and supply side are, are hocus pocus. I mean, you know, I, I don't believe in socialism. I don't believe in collectivism. I don't believe in redistributionism, but, but I certainly don't believe in trickle down uh, economics. I think trickle down economics, you got to start with capitalism being an idol and not an economic theory. Capitalism is not without holes and failures, and I think you got to be critiqued or be critical of capitalism when it deserves to be to be criticized, but but those who believe in supply side 
and trickle-down economics. The majority of Republicans, that, that they treat capitalism as an idol and not an economic um, theory. 843-661-0937. We're getting behind here a bit, blabbering randomly about <laughs> whatever's happening in the political world. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. You know, there's kind of a conversation. I went on Twitter a second ago. This debate about Mitch McConnell. I mean, he's 81 years old. Um, people are expressing sympathy for McConnell. I think you can express sympathy in a humanistic way for McConnell and simultaneously say he's too damn old to be in office. I mean, an 81-year-old man doesn't need to be in charge of, you know, something as important as as the federal government. I read a statistic. Only 2% of Americans believe that someone over the age of 80 should be um, in charge of the government. Josh, you know what the most popular age is? Uh, I do not. 51 to 65. Hmm. Uh, about 55% of Americans believe that our elected officials should be between the age of 51 and 65. I kind of agree with that. I mean, you you probably... Uh, you know, got married, raised a family, or attempted to do some of those things. Not as um, not as high a percentage of people to get married and have a kids now, but it's still something that kind of uh, adds maturity to your life. You've seen a lot of trips around the sun. You've gained a certain worldly knowledge that I think serves you well in uh, in doing that. Hey, I want to. We got a guest here, and um, I want to kind of introduce the guest, but I want to I want to couch it in a certain way. When I started doing this. And we gained somewhat of a following. People would pitch me stories. And, and I'm thinking to myself, why are you pitching me these stories? I mean, it'd be about local government or about something going on in the community. And, and I would always respond, you need to call Dan Rather. I mean, I'm not in the journalism business. I'm not a news person. I don't have any interest in do- But it dawned on me that we were in a news desert, that, that some of the assets and commitments that were been historically been made in Florence, I can't speak to something in Orangeburg. Don't live there, but but I got to believe in some of these secondary markets. We've seen, uh, you know, a changing of the media. We've seen a big decentralization of media. Talk radio is a big part of that. The internet uh, is a big part of that. But 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 I just I sensed that we desperately needed a journalistic effort in our community. We needed genuine reporting on local government. We needed, um, you know, uh, just somebody keeping tabs on what elected officials are doing not gotcha and not trying to throw someone under the bus but just hold people accountable and responsible for what they voted on and why they voted for x y or z and and i heard i got invited to a meeting about a year ago might have been a little better than a year ago and i wondered why i got invited um because it was about the post and courier coming to florence and the post and courier is probably one of the iconic and probably they are the iconic brand in south carolina media print media historically that they're kind of evolving into more of a digital presence. But um, but they've committed to expand. In, in, a, in an era and age where newspapers are constricting and going out of business, the Post and Courier has a different model. It's locally owned. It's not corporate media. And they're trying to figure out ways to offer reporting and journalism to some of these areas that are without because of the, um, uh, the changing landscape of, of American political media. And someone that I've met and gotten to know a little bit is Tim Matthews. He's with uh, the Post and Courier here in Florence. They've actually got a bureau here in Florence. They're up and running. Uh, I don't know how many of you know about it, but they're um, they're in the process of building uh, or building a genuine, you know, news agency, kind of a satellite of the Post and Courier in in good old Florence and the PD. And uh, and Tim is here to kind of um, update us 
on what's happening. Is that a fair articulation, Tim? No, definitely, Ken. I mean, uh, that's that's really what our philosophy is. We come into these areas that they are news deserts. And why have they become news deserts? Well, because the old kind of um, uh, business model for newspapers was two-thirds of the revenue would come from advertising. One-third would come from subscribers. Well, with 70 cents out of every dollar being spent with Google or Meta in advertising, that model does not work anymore. And so we come in with a different, a different philosophy. They cut, they regionalize their news. We bring in and invest in the community. We also invest in, in, in our newsroom. So we have, we have three full-time reporters. We have, uh, we have an editor we brought over from the morning news, Chris Day. A lot of you probably know him. He's got 42 years of newsroom experience. And we're covering the PD. I mean, you know, obviously Florence and Darlington is, is a big part of that, but we are in all 10 counties of the PD. So every one of our reporters is embedded in those communities. And what are we covering? We're covering education. We're covering local politics, business, and breaking news. And that's kind of what, what our philosophy is. And, um, you know, so we launched on May 1st. We had an event at the Performing Arts Center. We had about 350 people there. Great turnout. We got, and we got a great reception. Uh, we launched the website on May 1st. We added an e-newsletter uh, a couple weeks later. That's weekly right now, and um, we're going to expand that to several more days. And, um, yeah, just the reception has been, has been tremendous. And, you know, we're in 17 markets ac- across South Carolina, and really that's what our philosophy is, local journalism and holding, you know, holding those local politicians accountable. You've involved yourself in some way with, uh, with interns at one of our teaching universities here, Francis Marion University, that was important to me. I mean, when I realized that there were going to be some partnerships and collaborations, it excited me because uh, you you may disagree with me, but I I don't think the world of mass comm is a kid graduates from college, goes to work at the local newspaper, goes to work at a bigger market, hopes one day the Wall Street Journal calls. I mean, that's just, I mean, I'm not calling it a dinosaur, but there's a very different animal out there if you're interested in being a member of the media. Well, that's what we want to do is we want to, we want to keep those, those journalism students in South Carolina. So we have six interns who are starting in, in August. We're actually going to have two in the newsroom. I'll have two in advertising. We're going to have two in marketing. And we're going to, and, and we're going to change them out every, every, uh, every semester. So we want to, yeah, invest in, in those students. And hopefully, you know, when they graduate, they'll, they'll stay here in South Carolina. Tim, what is the new model? I mean, what, what, I mean, obviously, you're making a big investment, a big impression in, in our community. Uh, you, you talked about a print publication. We're talking about a, um, a digital presence. Kind of walk me through, uh, if someone is interested in what you guys have to offer, how do they find out more? Well, first of all, just kind of the, our philosophy is, you know, it's digital first. It has to be because 24-7 news cycle. But it, it is different here in this community, man. And if you would have told me two months ago we'd be launching a print product, I'd say you're nuts. But really what we do is we look at what the, the needs are of the community and, what, and, and they, wanted a, they wanted a print product. So we're going to start out with a, kind of a test in August. We're going to send it, send it in the mail. It's going to be 13,000 households here in, in Darlington and, and Florence County. And we'll kind of see how it goes um, and then kind of take it from there. Uh, it, it's, we're kind of, yeah, we're kind of flying the plane and designing at the same time here. So um, it, our philosophy is really just looking at what the, what the community needs, what they want. And then, and then delivering it. And, and, and you would agree with, you and I have met a couple of times and talked about this. I mean, there, there has to be some, um, some reporting on what local government does. Yes. I mean, your, your style, nor your paper style is, you know, um, let's go find somebody and, 
and embarrass them on the front page of the paper. I mean, I do think there's an attitude out there amongst some that want to do that, but you just want to break genuine journalism and reporting on what local government is doing or not. Well, so, ab- absolutely, and, and we want to do the deep dives, and that's not and that's not what most media companies do these days because it costs money. It takes time, but we're going to do the deep dives. We're going to do the investigative reporting that we're known for. As a matter of fact, there was just uh, um, they just had a newspaper conference where they gave out a bunch of re- awards, and we actually won the most awards of any newspaper in the country because of that that deep dive, that investigative journalism that we're known for. Let's take a break, Josh. Take a break. I want Tim to stay with us, and let's cover a couple of other issues. I think this is important, guys. I mean, you know, the, the, we have built a successful media effort, but we're conservative talk radio. I mean, I, I've got a lane. I've got a niche. I am unbelievably um, impressed and optimistic that a major media outlet in our state has decided to make a commitment and investment in an area that is still important, but not properly, not properly covered. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Okay, we're going to get gut level on us here. Tim, uh, Tim Matthews, Post and Courier, is with us. Uh, he's the uh, what? What is your official title? I'm sorry. Well, I'm the uh, I'm the publisher, and I'm actually uh, also digital sales director. Okay, of the PD Bureau, right? Is Correct. that the that's the official? Correct. I mean, it's called the PD Bureau, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Okay, yep. um, we're going to get gut level on us here. He's a newspaper guy. Um, and it's digital print now. I'm a radio guy. We both are in um, in the business to keep our heads above water. Talk radio is uh, it's different. I mean, it's um it's not mainstream. I think it's becoming more mainstream um, today. But there's a business model. The business model is to garner an audience. The business model is to find advertisers. The business model is to gain, or excuse me, to um to co- to connect those advertisers with those consumers. I mean, it's just, it's kind of the oldest trick in the trade and it's not rocket science when you get down to it. But, but for a long time, you spoke a little bit about subscribers and, and advertisers. What is the business model going forward? I mean, I, I have a clear understanding of what we do here, but, but what is the business model uh, for what you're going to be doing here in our, in our hometown? Well, I tell you what, Ken, ours is very unique. You know, you can't make it on advertising. Um, you, you can't make it on, you know, having paywalls on, on websites. That, that'll, that'll help, obviously. Um, we do have some of, the, some of ours are paid subscribers, you know, for the print piece. But how we make it is individual contributors and, and companies who believe in what we're doing. And these, some of these are, have some big names, too. So Google and Meta, actually, they help fund us. Um, we also have, we do these fund, these fund drives. So we had one back in the first quarter, and it was like a hundred thousand uh, in a hundred days. We were trying to raise. We actually raised more than four times that amount, and some of them come in at thirty dollars, and some of them come in at three thousand dollars, and then we have some some big donors. So that's really where we where we have to. It's a bit philanthropic. Yeah, it re- it really is, and it's 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 completely different than what I'm used to. Um, but you know, it's it's a family owned company. They've been here, been in South Carolina since 1804, and um, they believe in, in local journalism, and they believe in investing in the community, and, and people want to contribute to that. Let's let's go down some of the other extracurriculars you're talking about. Uh, we know that you're collaborating with our local university, um, but what about kids in school? What about K through 12? Are we doing anything to try and encourage kids to have an interest in the art of journalism? Well, first of all, one of our reporters is is uh, part of our education team. So we have an education team that uh, that is statewide, 
And GE, who's actually, uh, she's lived in South Carolina her whole life. She's our, she's our education reporter. Um, but, but really what, what we've uh, developed is a relationship with um, the high schools here in Florence and, and Darlington County. And we've come up with a program, and it's called Academic Achievers. And, and really what it is is we're going to have um, each one of the principals, we're going to give them kind of some criteria. They're going to choose a male and female academic achiever of, of the month um, for the upcoming school year. And so there's 17 schools, so we're going to have 34 candidates each month. And then we're going we're gonna to have a panel. It's going to be um, you know, politicians, some community leaders, past and present educators, and they're going to choose the winner each month. And then what we're going to do at the end of the year is we're going to get that panel back together and we're going to have a, we're going to have a banquet where we're inviting all the, all the monthly, you know, students who have won and their parents. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to have that banquet. And then we're looking at, you know, some, hopefully some, some big prizes here. So we're looking at maybe vehicles, uh, you know, scholarships, things like that. Um, but we just launched that, but we didn't wait for a sponsor. We, we went forward. We said, we're going forward with this. Already so, and then in the in the in the uh, monthly print products, we will also our our print product we will um, recognize those folks as well and take some video. So we're really excited about that. And um, yeah, we, when we went around and pitched the idea to all the superintendents, they were they were enthusiastic to say the least. I'm going to be a homer here for a second. I want to get your take and response uh, on this. Um, those of us who have lived in this area all of our lives saw a decline in media coverage when Horry County and the beach began growing as fast as they did. Um, it's the same television market, so to speak. So WPDE, WBTW, WMBF, um, I mean, they try to cover both markets, but they're limited on, on, on resources and assets. And let's be honest, some of the beach has grown a lot faster than the PD region. There's a disgruntlement that, that I sense amongst people in the PD uh, I'm not jealous or envious of the beach, but, but the reality is the, the majority of local news is Myrtle Beach centric. Is that not going to be the case? I mean, this will not be a Myrtle Beach centric news agency, but rather focusing on what we would refer to as the PD. Yeah, we're just going to cover the, the 10 counties in the PD. We have, a, we have an organization down at the beach. You know, it's, it's just a website at this point. So they'll cover that, but we're going to cover the PD. And, and talking about, you know, the broadcast stations, I was part of it. I worked for WBTW. Um, and I remember, you know, coming into Florence and, you know, once, once, once they left and went to the beach when they, you know, they're on a TV drive or whatever there. So, so yeah. And really the, they are covering the beach. They might have somebody here part-time. Um, but that's, that's not what their focus is because they have to allocate their resources, you know, accordingly, or at least they, how they think they should be. But, but the one thing you guys are doing is putting boots on the ground, but that's what excites me. I mean, you, you know, a lot of people say things that they write things on paper. You guys are actually in the process of, of, um, of empowering local journalists to go do a job in a community that for the last six or eight or 10 years has lacked that. Yeah, there, we are boots on the ground. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, it's seven days a week. Uh, we, have, we have three young reporters, and, um, yeah, they're getting after it. I mean, they are, they're getting into these communities. They're getting to know the folks in those communities. They're embedding themselves. And um, and just they're holding them accountable as well, though. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. Thank you for coming by. Thanks, Ken. Yes, sir. Josh, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple. I know we're not top of the hour, but we'll we'll um we'll figure this out as we go. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Josh, got a quick question for you. How old do you want your president to be? Uh, 
45, 50-ish. Why? Why do you want him to be for her? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, you, you might be a woman. I mean, why do you want that person to be 45 or 50? I think that is intellectual and a, a perfect blend of intellectual might be, privacy might be a, and might wisdom. Might be a dumb 50-year-old. It, well, yeah, it could be. I mean, I, this is assuming they're competent enough to run for president. So you're 25. Yes. What do you make of the president, 82, or 80, and the minority leader, 81? What, what do you make of that? I mean, just give me your impression of that. That might be pushing it. That's a little too old. But I mean, I voted for a 70-year-old in 2016. He, or his 70-something, right? Should we have an age limit? I mean, yes. forget term, I mean, the, the debate's about term limits, but should we have an age limit? Should, shouldn't... The, the average age of a CEO in a Fortune 500 company, I read this morning, is about 64 years old. Mm-hmm. But they, they kind of ascribe to what you say. They, they, get that, they get that job when they're in their late, late 50s. They keep that job until their mid-60s, and then they're out of there. Now they get a golden parachute. They can go to the beach or Hamptons or whatever and do uh, whatever they choose to do. I think it's despicable that we've got people in their 80s in prominent positions within government. I, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it just the average life expectancy of an American male is seventy nine point six. The president is over eighty, and the minority leader is over eighty. So they've outlived the average life of the. It's just it's absurd, and and I think we're finding evidence of the absurdity when we hear Biden can't finish the sentence, can't get off the stage, and Mitch McConnell. I mean, something. And I, and I have sympathy. I have human sympathy for those men. I really and truly do. But. That's what they signed up for. That's what they asked for permission to be and do. And I mean, they're fair game when, when they kind of go down down that humanistic compassion I have. So, sympathy, not not so much. That's the job you wanted. You love the power and influence. And when you look as goofy as you do doing what it is you do, I mean, you're, you're fair game. I, I looked on Twitter during the break and, you know, like I'm um, – uh, wow, man, the number of people on Twitter who are saying things about Biden's age and and um, and McConnell's, well, go home. I mean, go, do, do what most 80-year-old people do and, and, and go home. Hey, I want to shift gears. We've got an interesting subject here. This is, um, this is me taking advantage of this being a radio show I have a lot of control over. I mean, I'm, I don't have full discretion, but I have a lot of autonomy on who comes on, who doesn't, what we talk about. I am a Gamecock. I'm an unapologetic Gamecock. So you Clemson fan are going to just bear with us for a bit because we're going to talk about, uh, well, it's just kind of interesting. We're not just talking about Gamecocks. We'll talk about NIL um, in theory, but Mark Benoit is with us. Mark is a a hometown boy, formerly of the uh, Republican National, excuse me, the Republican State Party. Spent a lot of time. Mark shadowed me. That would have been in 2011, I think. Um, We're 2023, he's 12 years older. And he looks 12 years older, married, and all that good stuff. But Mark has been a diehard Gamecock fan, graduate of the University of South Carolina, um, got involved in USC. Um, I guess politics kind of led him down the road of wanting to better understand uh, the NIL. Uh, I've told Mark, and he and I have talked a thousand times about it. It's not whether you like it or not. I mean, that debate has been settled. Maybe they massage or, or manipulate NIL in some way, shape, or form. But right now, one of the most important things college football is dealing with is the NIL. And Mark is, uh, what is your official title? I'm the Director of Development for the Garnet Trust. That means he asks for money, folks. That's what the Director of Development does. It's a does. fancy way of saying I beg people yeah, for money. Yeah, he's a fundraiser, guys. He's a fundraiser. 
but he's doing that in the name of Garnet Trust, um, which is what I believe to be the most respected NIL uh, agency, so to speak, or entity within um, within Gamecock land. So, so Mark, what got you here? I mean, what led you down the road of being the fundraiser for, for Garnet Trust? Uh, so you mentioned before I worked in politics before. Um, people is kind of, I think, my skill, you know, people have a skill, and we talk. You talk a lot, a lot of the time on on your show uh, of the regular working class. My skill is people. Um, I think it's kind of like you a little bit, Ken. Um, but uh, trying to interact with people as much as I can on the on the campaign trail. Um, but my true love is the Gamecocks. You know, as much as I love politics and have been worked in it my whole life, um, then you know I've always I always looked at the Gamecocks as a little bit of a safe haven. Well, now it's my everyday, um, and so. I uh, I started in January of 2023. I got married one week and started a job the next week um, and have been full force ever since. So let's talk a little bit about NIL. Um, name, image, say, and... Okay, yeah, I jump. will say too, I mean, it's a, it's a good combination for your show because there's been a whole lot of political discussion about NIL here in the past well, I mean, The NCAA days. just appointed a former governor as, as their new executive director. We know where that's headed. I mean, he's going to Washington to lobby for some changes eventually to NIL. Um, it's not perfect, but Mark, I've, I've got an argument, and I, I want to get your take on this. You and I have talked about this a lot. I believe had the NCAA been willing to give an inch, they walk, they, they would have never been made to be giving a mile. I mean, that's kind of where we are. It's a bit of the wild, wild west out there right now. Um, but, but for a long time, the NCAA ran uh, that organization with an iron fist um, and said, well, they got rich, colleges got rich, ADs and coaches and all were enjoying the benefit the kid did not. And all of a sudden, a lawsuit happens, Ed O'Bannon and EA Sports, and the kid is now in the driver's seat, so to speak. Is, is that a fair encapsulation yeah, of how I we mean, got here? Yeah, I mean, you you even look back to the first, I took a sports management class in, in college that talked about this whole scenario. But you look back to the, I think it was the 1985 football season NBC, ABC worked a deal with a couple of colleges. That's why NBC's with Notre Dame. ABC at the time was with University of Georgia. Um, they were spe- they were school specific, and then all of a sudden they were like, "Well, how are we going to share this revenue?" And and you know you had one national game a week. Now you have twenty five national games a week. Um, and so the you know the colleges were able to get rich. They obviously have a lot of influence over power brokers within the within the uh, political subset. Um, and so you, there was never really any changes. Then all of a sudden. Ed O'Bannon comes along and says, hey, that guy in a football game looks like me, um, and I should get compensated for it, and I, I believe he's right. Um, and uh, and so that was in 2014 was the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. And so it, it took seven years to kind of even get to a point where folks could make money or, or players could make money um, for their name, image, and likeness. Uh, and then, you know, here we are in 2023, and it's it's wide open. It's the the controlling factor of college well, sports. Well, and, and I'll argue this, and I'm going to get your take. You're living it. I'm not. I mean, I hear about it. I read about it. I talk to you about it. But you're living it every every day. If South Carolina and Clemson, I mean, let's be fair here. If South Carolina and Clemson don't commit what it takes to be competitive in NIL, they're not going to get the best players. You can't expect success from your coaches unless you provide them the resources to be successful. And NIL is the next resource to provide them. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't arms race as far as facilities go, um, but this is this is the new arms race. I mean, you've got to be able to provide your coaches um, the ability to to retain and attract players. So what do you tell, a, in your case, a Gamecock fan? I would imagine somebody's doing the, the very same thing you're doing at Clemson, Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Florida. I mean, it's, it's an arms race, and NIL's the latest 
um, weapon in the, in the arms race, so to speak, to attract kids to to the school. But what do you tell a Gamecock supporter who has given money to the Gamecock Club, that they've given money to the university, and all of a sudden Mark's knocking on their door, hey, I need a little more of your money. I mean, w- w- what do you say to the person who says, look, man, I've given and given and given, and here you are asking me for more. How do you argue that, that making that extra contribution to NIL is worth it? Well, you know, I think specifically as Gamecock fans, Clemson's had a little bit more success here recently, but as as Gamecock fans, we've always strived for what can take us to the next level. And it was, you know, we need to upgrade the stadium. We did that. We need to upgrade our operations facilities, our practice field and stuff like that. We did that. So now this is the next race. But but I think my argument is to to the season ticket holder that buys their four season tickets in the in the, in the lower deck because that's gotten expensive. You would agree it, to that. It, I mean, it's got expensive. It, it, it absolutely, has gotten expensive. And, and I'll applaud Clemson and Carolina. They've done a better job here in the past couple of years, even in the height of inflation, that they've been able to maintain ticket prices. To they haven't increased year over year. They've gone up a little bit, but nothing to the extreme that we've seen other things go up. However. The whole point of you going to the game, obviously, is there's a social aspect, but the but the vast majority of people, they want to win the game. I mean, it is a competitive nature. You have that school spirit. You want to beat Tennessee or Kentucky or Vanderbilt or Clemson or Georgia, whoever you're playing. And and so you want to make sure that whenever you're spending your $5,000 a year, whatever it is, to, to travel up there, go to the games, whatever, hey, I want to do my part to make sure there's a quality product on the field, on the court. Um, and so for all sports, I mean, from, from football all the way down to – to women's track and field. We want to make sure that, that the Gamecocks are competitive and NIL and and the Garnet Trust is is the way to do that. What about the people that have questions, legality or not, tax write-off or not? Walk me through um, some of that, what you've learned in relation to those questions. I have a lot of people say, hey, is it tax deductible? I mean, wh- where does the money go? How do I know the money is going exactly where Mark Bernard or whomever says it's going? Yeah, so we we have two separate entities for, for your everyday fan that wants to give $25 a month. You can go to GarnetTrust.com and sign up today, and, and that money goes into a pot. We, we work with the coaches to determine what they need. You can also earmark your money um, for a sport. You can't earmark it for a certain player, but you can earmark it for a sport. Um, if you care a lot about women's basketball and say, hey, I want to give Dawn Staley everything she's got or football or whatever it may be, then then you can earmark it on, on our website. Um, if you are looking for a, a larger tax-deductible gift, um, then you can go to GarnetTrustFoundation.org. Um, the foundation is a 501c3. We operate on a what we call a 70-20-10 model. So uh, 70% of the money goes back to the player. 20% actually goes directly to a charity. Um, and then 10% helps cover our, our overhead. Are some universities doing better than others, and why? I mean, I, I would imagine the successful programs would have remained successful. Well, and, you know, it's interesting you say that because, yes, there are schools that are doing better than others. One, obviously, the, where they are, their location, their their demographics of their state have an impact on that. Their economy of their state has an impact on that. Um, but the schools that we've seen that are raising and spending the most money are schools that I would consider – national brand name schools that have had success recently enough that they want it back, but are not having success consistent of an Ohio state, a Georgia an Alabama. Um, those schools aren't having to necessarily pay as much because there are kids that still want to go to school there on, on a football side of things. Um, the schools that are really spending and, and are raising and spending the most are the Southern cows of the world, Texas, Texas A&M, Florida, LSU, Tennessee, schools that have had a little bit of that success 
in our lifetime and even in a, in a high school kid's lifetime, but they, so they've tasted it a little bit and they're willing to kind of spend whatever it takes to get back there. Mark, is it fair to say we, let's use Spencer Rattler as an example. I mean, he would be one of the high profile Gamecock players. Clemson would have uh, someone equal to that, but let, let's use Rattler as an example. When, when Rattler has a certain market value, do we just give him the money or there are expectations that Spencer has to meet to earn well, the money? And that's why I like NIL so much is, you know, I think in the in the old days of, of giving some money behind, you know, behind the back of, of you know, on the, a, on the a bags brown, under the seat yeah, of the pickup. A, a brown paper bag, uh, then there wasn't any, there was no expectation. They took the cash and they spent it and kind of did what they want to with it. Every single one of our players that we, we compensate is under some kind of contract. They owe us X number of hours of FaceTime for charity work, for, you know, interactions with donors, you know, something. So a children's hospital. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Spencer Rattler and, and Juice Wells, two of the players on South Ghana who are in partnership with Garnet Trust, they went and emceed a dance marathon at the University of South Ghana that raised over a million dollars for for a children's hospital. And that was part of their obligation um, to, right. to, to Garnet Trust. Those hours were part of their obligation. We partnership with Dance Marathon. It's a huge, um, I'm sure Libby's probably uh, a part of it, but it's a huge organization in South Carolina. Um, and and so we we help we we essentially help them raise a million dollars. What sort of reception have you gotten with Garnet Trust? Uh, a lot of questions. I mean, a lot of my job has to be education. You know, it's not as much as you would think that I am a fundraiser. I am, but I'm having to fundraise through teaching somebody about what NIL is, the impact it's having, and the positive impact. I think there's a lot of folks that think, oh, you're just paying this quarterback you know, X number of dollars and they're driving around in a new car and they going on trips and, you know, I want them to play football. It's like, there's a lot more to it than this. And so it, it, it takes me time to, to explain that. To is dinner. it fair to say the 30 year old is more receptive than the 65 year old is? Absolutely. And how do you clear that hurdle? I mean, yeah, how do you I mean, address that? Well, and, that and that's that, the that, hard part because, you know, traditionally a donor base is a little bit older. Um, and so, you know, you're having to go to those folks because, because they can help you financially. Um, but we're really we're we're honing in a lot on that twenty five to forty year range. Somebody that's fresh out of college, they love the Gamecocks. They want to see us. They want to see the Gamecocks win. They want to see Shane Beamer be successful. And if I can get a if I can get a game uh, a young alumni in at twenty five dollars a month now, I hope that you know whenever they're fifty and they're running a company or they've got their own business or whatever it may be, they can give me that bigger check. So how does someone find out more? I mean, uh, obviously there are a lot of questions. You've answered some of those. But, but there's concern, there's questions. There, there, there's, there, there's Some people don't like it. I mean, they, they're just, they, I don't like the idea of paying an amateur football player, but it's not amateurism any longer. I mean, this is it's kind of the, uh, it's the minor leagues of college football right. is, is what it is. But, but how can someone have some of these questions they have answered? Uh, so you can you obviously use the internet, use your resources. If you go to garnettrust.com, there is a, a FAQ, a frequently asked questions uh, page. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of answers on there. You can read more about what we're doing on the charitable side with Garnet Trust Foundation. Um, and then obviously, uh, S- South Carolina just came out yesterday with an NIL hub that has all their information. If you go to, if you just go Google Gamecocks NIL hub, uh, it will walk you through the entire NIL process at South Carolina. Is this coordinated with the university? Has this been blessed by the board of trustees, the athletics director, the football coach? How much interaction and collaboration happens with those groups? Yeah. I mean, we, I, I, I talk to someone within the athletics department on a daily basis, um, and so we're working with them hand in hand. There's a big announcement coming up with the University of South Carolina and Garnet Trust today. Um, so be on the lookout on, on Twitter, Facebook, um, 
and the newspapers and stuff like that. So I think it'll be a, a, some big news, and we're excited to be a part of it. Are, are you personally available to go sit down and speak to someone who may be interested in making a contribution? Absolutely. If you, uh, I'll give my email over, over there. It's mark, M-A-R-K, at garnettrust.com. If you email me and you're interested in, in getting more information about what we're doing at Garnet Trust, then we'd love, uh, we'd love to have you. Okay, Josh, let's take a break. Got to pay some bills. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. That was a point of personal privilege. When I was in the Senate, excuse me, when I was presiding over the Senate, every now and then a senator would ask for a point of personal privilege. Well, I don't do that much, but I just, I didn't even ask, did I, Josh? I just assumed it was okay to get a point of personal privilege and talk a little Gamecock football and Garnet Trust. Um, you know, I'm, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'd love for amateur athletics to be amateur. I, I really would. I think the... The purest form of college football is to have trials and walk-ons make the team and very few people get scholarships. I think that's the the purest form of amateur athletics, but that ain't where we are. It became big business and, and some of the teams committed to doing whatever it took to win. And that would be paper bags under the, you know, the seat of the truck and, and you know, um, cutting the grass at a stadium that had artificial turf. <laughs> there were a lot of creative ways to get great players, um, their funding. But uh, but anyway, NIL is kind of a game changer, and I wanted to touch on that. Both Carolina and Clemson are heavily invested in NIL. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is with us. Am I right or is not? Okay, Manasso is not with us yet this morning. Um, he is to be with us in just a bit. Do we have a call from someone else? We do. We have Jim from Florence on the line. Jim, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Ken. The other day, Williams called in, and he kind of regurgitated a lie that the cathedral's been pushing the last few weeks, which is that uh, um, specifically Bakari Sellers, who's turned out to be a huge racist, um, and Kamala Harris. That, and their lie was that Florida banned um, the college board's AP African-American studies curriculum and added to their curriculum that slaves benefited from slavery by learning skills as, as slaves. Um, well, I did some digging and found that on page 72 of the 2023-2024 Af- uh, AP African American Studies Official Framework Project and Exam Overview, and it states under the heading of Essential Knowledge, quote, in addition to agricultural work, enslaved people learned specialized trades and worked as painters, carpenters, tailors, musicians, and healers in the North and South. Once free, African-Americans use these skills to provide for themselves and others. Um, so, Ken, uh, well, specifically to Williams, brother, you were lied to, and you were used to push a false narrative. So, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I want to get back to that in just a couple of seconds, but right now I think we have Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern uh, from Capitol Hill. Jared, good morning. How are you? I am well. Good morning. So, something happened on the way to a plea bargain. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it didn't and, happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something happened on the way to a plea bargain. I mean, I've got a theory, but a lot of people have theories. Um, the judge was having none of the arrangement DOJ made with the defense of Hunter Biden. Um, what What is the notion or sensibility on Capitol Hill the day after um, what, what, what we expected to be a very normal and routine affair turned into something other than that? 
Yeah, well, listen, Republicans on Capitol Hill never really like this deal. I, I will say this, that doesn't really matter, right? What House Republicans think about a federal plea agreement isn't going to matter a great deal in, in sort of the, the jurisprudence of it. Now, certainly it's going to matter in the investigations that House Republicans are putting forward as they continue to try and link together some of these business dealings uh, with the president's son to the president and sort of move that ball forward. But what the judge did have a problem with was – that the two sides, both Biden's attorneys and federal prosecutors, seem not to be on the same page as it relates to immunity, which is a pretty standard part of a plea agreement, right? When you plead guilty to a crime, it's generally because you are um, pleading guilty to a lesser crime to prevent prosecution from a more serious offense, right? That's generally why people plead guilty in these types of cases. Um, What the judge said as she read this immunity agreement, is you understand, Mr. Biden, that just because you're pleading guilty to these two tax misdemeanors does not mean that the prosecution can't come back and file additional charges um, on other issues. And he was like, no, that's not my understanding. And the defense was like, yeah, no, that's not what what our understanding is. And the prosecutor said, what are you talking about? Of course, that's what the deal is. In which case, the uh, one of the attorneys for Hunter Biden got up and said, then we misunderstood and we're ripping it up. (laughs) So um, that put an end to the plea agreement, right? Um, And so uh, the the judge basically had both sides get back together. And it sounds like um, they are closer now to to working out a plea agreement. You can't sort of do all of that in the short time frame they had yesterday. So in the interim, what happened is Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to these two tax offenses. And it moves this case forward. If there is not a plea deal, that would mean that there is a trial. Um, And the judge has kind of given these deadlines uh, to both sides to get together, present arguments, show me why this is a deal that that we can accept. And those questions are are still lingering out there. A lot of it is going to do with how the immunity is handled. A lot of it is going to do with how this um, gun charge is handled. Remember, this plea deal also involved a diversion program on this uh, unrelated separate gun offense from Hunter Biden. The judge had some constitutional questions about how that was going to be enforced. So there are still some big questions that are going to have to be resolved between uh, Biden's legal team and federal prosecutors. Jared, you mentioned Republicans on Capitol Hill. They're obviously motivated by something. Uh, I'm a conservative radio show host. Uh, I have read and tried to understand uh, from one end to the other, this particular, not just the plea, but the situation Hunter finds yeah, himself yeah. in. There was a specific question asked. I don't want to try to turn you into, into a radio show host. That's unfair to you. But but there were there were questions about violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Yeah. I mean, that that, that yeah, is really and truly what a lot of us are most interested in. Does this implicate in any way, shape, or form President Joe Biden? I'm not asking that yeah, question. That's the question yeah, we no, are asking that, that, of ourselves. That, that, that's the question, right? Because if, if, and that's a good question because if there were to be, let's say, an impeachment or something else, right, that would have to be the link, presumably, right, to move that forward. Now, as it relates to Hunter Biden, separate and apart from his father, it is clear from this court date, or this court hearing yesterday, that federal prosecutors are still looking into FARA. Um, remember the tax issue that this president's son is trying to resolve here is on unreported income. Um, if that income came from foreign sources, came from foreign uh, representation, 
That's not in and of itself illegal, but you have to register yourself as a foreign agent with the federal government. That is something that has gotten a lot of people in trouble. Recall, those were some of the offenses that came out of the Mueller probe of former President Trump, right? There were members close to the former president who had not registered as a foreign agent. They were prosecuted for that. Um, And when the judge sort of specifically asked about that statute, uh, prosecutors conceded, yeah, that is something that could still come forward that would not be included, presumably, in this uh, plea agreement through immunity. So that is one of the lingering questions out there about whether or not a plea agreement between uh, the president's son and prosecutors resolves some of those outstanding uh, legal questions. That is very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. Sure, that, that is so well explained by a professional reporter. Um, I mean, I, I, I put a little flavor, I put a little more salt and pepper on it than than probably he does. But that's always been my point, guys. And I, and I want to reiterate, I am, I mean, to, to, to me, the issue is not, and I don't want us to get hung up on it. The issue is not whether the plea deal was too tough or lenient. I mean, I, I personally believe it was a pardon. I mean, it was far too lenient. Of course, I believe that there should have been stiffer charges, especially the felonious gun charge. I mean, it's a felony. I mean, he, he was he was under the influence of, of uh, you know, controlled substance and owned a firearm, had a firearm in his possession. I mean, that's, that, that's a serious offense that normally includes incarceration, but it's not about whether the plea deal was too tough or too lenient. Um, it's whether or not Hunter Biden was acting as a foreign agent. I mean, it's obvious he was not registered as a foreign agent. I mean, he violated FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. But where did the money go? If Hunter Biden didn't register as a foreign agent then he is guilty of violation, the same thing Paul Manafort was guilty of. That's not even my concern. I mean, I'm not very concerned whether he registered as an agent or not. What was he paid for, and how was that money dispersed? That's what James Comer is saying. We've got bank records. Now, now Comer may be the biggest liar in Washington. He'd be a damn big one if he's the biggest liar in Washington. But, but you know, Comer has insisted that there is a paper trail here. There are shell companies. There are LLCs. There are family members. I would imagine at some point in time, I mean, if I'm giving Comer advice, have kind of a PowerPoint presentation and show the money coming from Burisma, from the Chinese energy company. The money goes into this account. It, it leaves that account and goes into this shell company. It leaves that shell company and goes to, you know, the grandchild's bank account. I mean, there's got to be an unraveling of that. I mean, it, I believe that happened, but I'm not seeing the visual or, or proof of, you know, where the money came from. So, so I want to say this again. As an American citizen, I'm concerned as to whether we've got two tiers of justice. I've always assumed we do. I mean, I, you know, it's not just the president's kid. I mean, if you're, if you're well-to-do, affluent, and have money to hire great lawyers, odds are you get a better outcome. That if you're some, you know, destitute man on the street corner who doesn't have any access to, you know, to you know, influence the system in some way, shape, or form, uh, I mean, that, that, that's not real surprising to most Americans. Certain people get treated differently than other people. Uh, newsflash. Wow, really? I mean, you believe? Yeah, of course that's the case. So, so that's never been my concern. Too tough, too lenient. It's too lenient. 
but I would expect Hunter Biden to be treated more leniently than anybody else. I mean, I just would, especially in Wilmington, Delaware. And that's why I always thought this would be kind of a rubber stamp. And when the show was over yesterday and Josh asked, you hanging around a minute? Yeah, because I want to watch this rubber stamp. Mm-hmm. I, I want to watch this judge do what I expect this judge to do. After all, it's in Wilmington, Delaware, and we're dealing with the Bidens. What are the odds that a judge doesn't go along? Well, the judge didn't go along. And, and, you know, maybe the judge went along because she thought the sentence was too lenient. Or maybe the judge didn't go along because there are a lot of questions about Farah that have not been answered yet. That's where I am. That's what I'm focusing on. That's what I've always focused on. And I always wondered when the story would change from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. And I think the beginning of that transition started yesterday when the judge specifically asked about who he worked for, how he earned money, and and, and was he registered or could this be eventually a violation of FARA? I mean, that, that's a big deal as far as I'm concerned. Now, it may not be to you. You may believe, and you're entitled to believe this, you may believe the judge is a pawn in the game, the biggest game ever. Vanguard and BlackRock and, you know, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the CEO of Exxon, the CEO of Chevron. I, mean, I, I don't doubt any of that. I mean, that, I've never disputed how much power and influence Davos has over all of our lives. And it may be, it could be, that this judge was told that the only Democrat Donald Trump can beat is Joe Biden, so we've got to figure out a way to get Biden off the field. I mean, that's Hollywood script, but we seem to be seeing a lot of that in American politics today. Um, I think the judge acted heroically. I think the judge decided to not play ball on a loose and fast deal when the prosecution and defense attorney were in cahoots with one another. I think the judge made a determination based on her interpretation of what integrity and ethic and honor in her courtroom. Now, now I could be wrong. It could be the cathedral in full gear and trying to get Biden off the field. This is going to create Joe Biden a lot of problems. And I think they know that because they've already kind of shifted gears. I mean, they moved the goalpost on uh, the president was the president knew nothing about his son's business dealings. He's never talked to his son about business dealings. To now, the president was never in business with his son. I mean, that's an obvious moving of the goalpost. It's kind of interesting to me. Smart people in the media picked up on this week. I think two weeks ago, I heard her say that. And I think, you know, we were talking on the radio one day. And I said, ah, this is kind of interesting to me. But the black lesbian said, we're moving, you know, we're, we're, it's not about he doesn't know anything, but rather he's never been in business. Um, and, and, you know, when you really think about it, guys, I think we've got to agree. The IRS whistleblowers accused the DOJ of not basically blocking, stonewalling, slow walking some of the IRS and FBI investigations as they were truth-seeking in, in what the Bidens have or have not done. So, so I think that we've got a major political scandal, and I think we're the precipice of in, kind of implicating the former, excuse me, the current president of the United States. I mean, it doesn't diminish anything Trump's doing. I mean, I get the whataboutism. I mean, if I'm a Democrat, that's what I want to talk about. What about Trump? What about Trump? What about Trump? This has nothing to do with Donald Trump. This says whether or not the, the, the Biden family are kind of an organized political crime family. I think they are. I've always felt they were. But, but I think now we're going to have to address in some way, shape, or form whether some of these premonitions are true or, you know, the Bidens have just, just been, uh, did they win a lottery 25 years ago? 
and, and use the anonymous clause. Did they win a lottery in a state that allows you to be anonymous? I mean, okay. I mean, what do you believe? That Hunter Biden is getting paid as a foreign agent and funneling some of that money to family members? Or the Bidens won a lottery 25 years ago that allowed them to remain anonymous in one of the states that allow you to remain anonymous? Uh, you know, I'm taking the former instead of the latter. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hey, there's a saying in the country. Jason Aldean's try this in a small in a small thing. Well, look what the dog done drug up. I mean, that, that's what we say a lot of the country. Look what the dog done drug up. So our good friend Randy Cato. Uh, for, Josh, had your job before. I think it was Cato and then Freehold and then and then you. Um, so meet the guy that had your job uh, <laughs> a couple of times removed uh, from, and he ain't here to get your job. I'll assure you of that. <laughs> He's here to um, just kind of say hello, right? That's right. Hey, I did want to say big kudos to uh, No Shot Josh. Man, I love that. I love it. Thanks, Kato. Yeah, well, well, from well, No Shot Kato, by well, the way. Well, from, from, hey, from hey. No Shot Ken. Yeah, we're we're um we're, we're risk takers here. But what you been up to, my man? Man, just uh, been burning up the roads, and of course, I, I'm always I'm listening. If I don't catch the show in the morning, uh, I've got the you know you can get on that on that either your Spotify and, and pick up the Wake Up Carolina. So you're not listening podcast. to East Street Radio. No, I'm not, I'm not listening to East Street. Cato kind of gave me the benefit of that with Springsteen for a minute or two, but he finally said, I don't get it, man. I mean, I, I just don't understand it. Free Bird would yeah, be his, uh, his song of preference. you made that post the other day talking about Free Fall, and I said, I think you meant Free yeah, Bird. Well, I, I, mean, I, I, I didn't think of that. You're right. I, I, and maybe I didn't do it because – but, I mean, seriously, you know, you endeared yourself to a lot of our listeners, and they ask about, hey, man, where's Cato? Yeah. So, so what exactly is Cato doing now? So, yeah, I'm just I'm driving, uh, driving a truck, uh, not a big truck. It's kind of a half size, uh, three weeks out of the month. I'm, one week I'm in Georgia, top of Florida. One week I'm in North Carolina. And then the third week's my favorite week. I go up to eastern shore of Virginia and come across into the uh, Shenandoah Valley, uh, you know, Maryland, Delaware. And last month I went to the uh, Amish country. I went to Pennsylvania for mm. the first time ever. It was close to Hershey, and I really wanted to go there, but I didn't. But I went up, and, you know, it's amazing to see people in buggies. There are literally people in buggies, and they're dressed like pilgrims. And they seem to be happy. But, it, uh, yeah, I mean, until, until you see it, it's like, I didn't really, that's real. It's real. It's real. <laughs> okay, you know? I, I got to touch on here with you now. How about the Braves? I mean, Braves, uh, the doggone Red Sox. I'm kind of hoping Bruce is listening this morning. And Jim, are they both Red Sox fans? Ah, I know Bruce is. I don't know about Bruce, Jim. Man, those yellow uniforms are just the ugliest things I've Despicable. ever seen in my life. Despicable. <laughs> But, but they, they were rolling the before the break. Yeah. They, they've slowed down a little bit. I was since worried then. about that. Yeah, but it's still a long, long season. Okay, yeah. I got to go, go here with you now. Um, I have lectured to Cato about diet and fitness yeah. and wellness, and, and he's made no bones about it. He struggles with that. I mean, he, he, he goes through ebbs and flows with that. Where, where are you? Because that's important to me because I want Cato to live to be 100, and, uh, and he's got to be well to live to be 100. Well, I'm in a, I'm in a great place right now. I, I went all carnivore at the first of uh, – well, actually, the first of the year, I kind of got off a little bit with my birthday, 50th birthday. It's kind of a big deal. Kind of let that make be an excuse for me to go off. Sure. But uh, I've been 54 days straight carnivore, and at the 1st of July, I joined this challenge, a walking challenge, uh, to walk every day in the month of July. Of course, I think that the goal is to not just be July, but keep on going. So that's my plan right now, and I've, I've made it. And I've been making these little – Little videos too. If you want to follow me on YouTube, I'll throw this out there. Please do, yeah. Ground beef guy. I'm the ground, ground beef, beef guy. guy. At ground beef guy. Just look that up on YouTube and uh, give me a follow. 
And I post just about every day, either a little short or something, talking about where I'm walking or where I'm at, and uh, have a little fun. So with you're that. down so, how much? So I'm down 42 pounds this year. Okay. So uh, 15 pounds in the month of July. But I, I just uh, I have a buddy of mine that last year he lost 245 pounds in a year doing carnivore, basically bacon, beef, butter, and eggs, those four things. Uh, a couple times a day, and I'm not hungry. I mean, they say eat till you're stuffed. On it, that's you know what I do a lot of times. But Cato turning fifty, did was that a moment that you said, "Man, I don't see many real big old people." Yep, there's no fat old people. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. And you got and, uh, kids, and you got, got people that depend on you, and you got to take good care of yourself. Yeah, and I want to see I, my grandkids. I mean, man. I know I'm overbearing about it, but I've always lectured to Cato, and, and I've tried to try to you know encourage and I've kept that in the back of my mind. And well, I mean, I appreciate that. I yeah. really and truly do. I, I ain't got. I mean, there's one thing I got figured out, and that's that. Everything else has me confused. But but I understand that fitness and wellness and being healthy lead to a longer and happier life. And I've always thought Cato could live a long time and be happy if he take better care of himself. And I'm encouraged that you're going down that road. Well, I hope to at the end of this, I say at the end of the journey, but when I get to where I feel like it's the right place, I want to come back and say, hey, here I am. It works. It does just work. It with me. So, so ground beef guy. Ground beef, at ground beef guy. Just do a search on that, and I'll pop up on there. Okay, and we're going to keep up with you, my man. Good All to right. see you. Good to see and you. And I mean that sincerely. Go Braves. Yeah. Uh, let me get it right. Go Leonard Skinner. Um, <laughs> no shot, Josh. You got yeah. his blessing by not taking by not taking the vaccine. I said, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And I called him the resident Bible thumper. So, yeah. so Josh and he yeah. have a similar. Josh is a very spiritual guy from a oh, very, good. very spiritual family. Right, Josh? That's right. Uh, Amen. But but I think yes, your sir. job is good. Cato's not here to try. And I don't yeah. think he put an application in. I'll check with uh, Sandy <laughs> to make sure uh, that's not the case. Uh, right. we got to wrap it up. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.